Welcome to the Vibe Tribe. We are out here. It's Wednesday night. We have so much to talk about. Turns out that this is an incredibly appropriate (laughs) moment to get into what we're going to discuss. The word to hold on to in your vocabulary would be alconomics. And it may sound like kind of an aberrant idea until we get, you know, you introduced to it. But the fact is, there is no economics without alchemy. There is no money without the occult. <laughs> and so we're going to be talking a lot about some ideas from uh, Gabriel or uh, Romy. Hold it up, buddy. A book by Tracy Twyman called Money Grows on the Tree of Knowledge. And I'm sure we'll have a lot of other ideas to unpack outside of what's in that book. But I spent the afternoon reading it from cover to cover. It's my second time through. And I definitely picked up some new new stuff this time. It's a really interesting read. As with a lot of Tracy's work, also kind of dark. But you can't really argue with the... <laughs> I mean, it's this has got everything. We got placenta sorcery. We yes. got something from nothing. We got the Templars. We got... <laughs> The Illuminati, we got the, we got it all, man. It's just absolutely uh, jam-packed. It's going to be a fun conversation. And, you know, before I introduce the guys, I wanted to do a little brief advertisement for Kyle at Tippecanoe Herbs. He recently made about a minute and a half video talking about a service he's offering. And I just thought it was so well put together and I love Kyle and his family. I wanted to share this with you because I'm sure there are some viewers out there who would really like to take up on the opportunity that he's presenting here. So here we go. Step onto the plant path. You find abundance. You find health, joy, beauty, a connection with nature, with source, with community. One thing you never find on the plant path is an end. It keeps opening up. Our online seven-month herbal program is interactive. It's a hands-on way of learning the relationship between the virtues of the plants and the systems of the body. I'm Kyle Denton, a community herbalist, and as your instructor, I'll guide you through the foundational principles so that you can apply them with confidence to serve yourself and your family. We cover a variety of home medicine making from infused oils, homemade vinegar, extracts, tincture making, tea blending, hydrotherapy, incense making, infused honey, and more. I'll send you some supplies in the mail and teach you how to make the medicine so that you keep your medicine cabinet stocked. You'll find recorded plant walks, and we meet live once a month as a group to discuss our lessons, our findings, share our medicine stories and recipes, and learn ways to improve them. In my work, I recognize the virtues of the plants through their patterns, how they express themselves to us so that we may know them deeper. This is the way I teach them as well. We learn the basic patterns so that you can use your critical thinking to apply the lessons to your own circumstances. Are you ready to step on the plant path? Classes begin April 1st. Sign up today. Yeah, that is just absolutely fantastic. People can sign up at Tippecanoe Herbs. And I don't know if the class, you can apply the coupon code, but all capital letters, Interverse is a coupon code you can get. Uh, 10% off products from there. I forgot to use it today. <laughs> I ordered three bottles of Kapow. I am a Kapow junkie. <laughs> I was like, dude, your Kapow is sold out. And he was like, no, no, it's not. And I was like, as soon as you what restock it, I'm going to sell it out because I what want more of that. So it's so good. Anyway, um, another thing, you know, as excited as I am about this, 
because we have a lot to talk about. I will accept, you know, a little round of congratulations, but then we'll move forward. I got married yesterday. So our wonderful friend, Ginny B in the chat, sometime soon ought to change her name to Ginny G. <laughs> it still has the same ring to it. Uh, you know, meeting in real life uh, from the internet and getting married turns out to be a pretty sweet move. I'm really excited about it. So anyway, how are you gentlemen doing? Better now. I am solid, man. Yeah, congrats once again. That's freaking awesome. Super Thank you. Was it an alchemical marriage? It always is. <laughs> For sure, man. For sure. Well, okay, so a little out in the evening, huh? To to truly tie the knot. And and I don't know if I said, but Romy's from the Rising from the Ashes podcast. He, he comes on now and then. Just wanted to make sure everyone knows where to find him. We are streaming over to his YouTube channel, which is exciting. We can now mm -hmm. do that easily. And so welcome everybody from the Rising from the Ashes fam. Um so to introduce this topic, you know, it's so big. But really, the fascinating thread to maybe follow would be the evolution of how money has worked throughout time. So um, I have just so many potential images and topics we could tackle. Uh, maybe I'll kind of steer the ship somewhat chronologically through some of the information in the book that we're talking about. But we'll just see how it goes. Um, you know, Roman, it was your idea to get this show going. Would you like to introduce what you're you know, interested in, excited about with this? Yeah, man. Yes. Yo, uh, I, I, I had a chance one day. It was the middle of the day. Um, after reading, I don't know. It was a Tuesday in the middle of the day. Uh, the clouds were out, but they made a shape, a specific shape that said, call chance, you crazy some be. So I did because I read like five pages of this book and was like, dude, cause chance sent the book to me. Apparently this book was sent to chance. Through Gabe, no, so he gave it, it. He handed it to me in person, oh. in in the flesh. So there's the double musk on there. That was a tying of the knot right there. You know, three of us read the same physical copy of this book. book. And so I, I was like, dude, like I don't know why, because it took me multiple months to get to reading it. It was on the list. It's in the library. You know, I mean, like working on a bunch of other books at the same time. But it, it, it seemed like there was a time, uh, something in the air that really wanted me to get going on it. And, you know, like you said, like it is kind of an interesting time right now as we're, uh, you know, entering into that hundred year mark of the Great Depression that um, our, our, you know, uh, families all experienced. Uh, seems like we're repeating this cyclical situation. Um, and then it just turns out a couple of days ago, the bank's starting to shut down all over the place. And they're all this, uh, there seems to be alchemical workings in the sky. And so this book is about the literal alchemical history and how money associates to the alchemical practices how it's always connected, where the different um, Western money that we experience in the society itself that we are experiencing is some sort of alchemical creation from none other than the magical workers of, you know, bacon and tea and all those characters and things and, and, and superseded in so much crazy shit. So, um, yeah, uh, it's nuts, man. It's nuts. I'm glad to be here. I'm really glad to see where we go with it today. I do have some pics and slides. They're rather rudimentary, uh, but, you know, they'll be fun for different uh, bockety things. So 
I've got a ton. No, I'm also. here, ready to ready to ready to rumble, baby. Let's go. Awesome, yeah, awesome. buddy. So before um, we get uh, too deep into it, I just want to say she actually has a second book on money as well called Solving Treasure. Oh. I do, and actually, I don't even think that's now. on Amazon. It is now. It wasn't for a while. So um, I do have like a, an original copy. And so it's Solomon's Treasure, uh, The Magic and Mystery of America's Money. So between the two books, it is a really powerful combo. Wow, Mario, you give me book envy like nobody else, man. You got <laughs> all the good books for real. That's great. I, yeah. I, I, uh, I forgot that was even out there. That is so cool. Right, nice right. dude. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's a good one. It's solid. Yeah, I wish I had had uh, that little sandwich. You know, I, I posted in the chat. I was like, the other one is Solomon's Treasure. I have never read it, though. I just know that it exists. And I feel like stacking those two together would just give you just so much juice. <laughs> Mario had to flex for <laughs> No, man. Hey, man, y'all could be flexing if y'all got the books. Where's it at? Let's go. So, okay, w- one thing I have been... What I went through this week was uh, like a lecture series about Herodotus's histories. And there was some pertinent information in there that I think maybe is worth pointing out. That like a, a big part of the origins of all this would have been in metallurgy and the tr- like mining trade. And we'll have a lot. I have a lot of notes about that. But you know what? I guess my question is. About history. First, you know, Herodotus, love him or hate him. <laughs> He's either a complete liar or everything he said is true. I reckon it's probably somewhere in between. Uh, but there's this story from Herodotus's histories about when Athens discovered a vein of silver and they mined it and they gained a whole bunch of income all of a sudden. And it was originally like the plan was they're going to distribute that wealth amongst the citizenry so that just opens up an entirely interesting question like the corporate city state and being a citizen uh, a corporate citizenship back then seems to have had a pretty different meaning than it has now it carried actual benefits like you're getting profits from the corporation that is the city state if they profit but i can't remember the cat's name but he uh, according to herodotus somebody convinced the Athenians to spend all the money that they got on a fleet. And that allowed them to actually defeat the Persians when the Persians came. So interesting twist of fate, but I guess like what is interesting, uh, the point to make would just be, um, you guys can still hear me, right? The point to make would just be, uh, when the monarchy, you know, would issue coinage, did they own the currency you know when we shifted to a monarchy uh, were they selling the dollars and selling the way that debt is sold now but i mean they weren't called dollars back then i don't know there's just a lot to think about with ancient money supply and what maybe these alconomic uh, masters of the <laughs> of the reality were attempting to do because the money supply back in the day would have been limited by how much coinage there actually was how much precious metal was in the system and that also means that the seafaring peoples, like the Phoenicians, for example, would have a huge advantage as they were exporting goods everywhere that they could actually take the wealth from 
a colony or a, another land or nation. Because if they're selling exported goods to these people and then sailing off with the coins, there's less money in the system for the people of that area. So I think that, you know, our Phoenicians are very heavily involved in the origins of all this. Uh, and, you know, in, in a minute, I'll pull up one of the oldest coins that's ever been found, uh, right. or at least a sketch of it, one of the yeah. Phoenician coins. And like, we'll see the symbolism on that. And that's going to give us a lot to talk about. You know, oh, I, that's so cool. You're on Herodotus too, man. He's been all up on my radar all for the past couple of weeks. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about Athens, the goddess uh, that Athens gets its namesake from, Athena. She is described as uh, as gray-eyed Athena, uh, which may be to say that there is a lineage of seers, or it may be to say that she sees money, that she's financially focused, we could say, because she is very cold-hearted. Uh, she, you know, she's kind of got a stoicism to her nature. She rejects suitors very readily. She's single, single-minded. Um, and also, yes, I also have uh, turned up that nature of that particular silver mine that they discovered. And it's kind of cool we're talking about owl-chemy because the Athenian coin has the owl on the coinage. And it even has kind of mesmerizing eyeballs uh, as well. So yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. This is going to be a lot of fun. A fun connection to that. Uh, we made a little bit ago about Athens and, uh, the owl symbolism and everything just to, for anybody who might be living in the area of Austin, Texas, Austin, Texas has like this connection to, uh, you know, I mean, every, everywhere in modern America or America in general is like syncretically uh, part of like ancient Greek occultic goodness. Um, but not Athens, Georgia, which does happen to be on the 33rd degree parallel, same as LA. Um, but there's like in the history of Austin, Texas, there's a connection to um, Athena and Athens. And uh, then there's all these owl structures everywhere all across uh, Austin, Texas. Like there's, obviously major corporations out of Austin, Texas and everything else, but there's a bunch of different owl art um, all over the place. So, you know, there is definite alchemy in Texas in Austin, Texas specifically uh, and a lot of money being circulated through there now. So, you know, cause I kind of wonder where this money that's being taken away from the smaller banks is all being consolidated. I didn't even look up where a lot of these, uh, central banks are uh, headquartered here in the States. I'd be super interested to see where they lie. If they lie like on like a magnetically hotspot or something or um, where they say a lot of the money might be kept in a, in today's world. I don't know. Do you guys know some of that? So let's look at the coin then. <laughs> I'm just going to take us into that. Cause I mean, where is all the gold? That's, too speculative for my scope currently, but also I got distracted because uh, my new aunt Gail is in the chat. I was like, Oh, hi. Hey Gail. <laughs> hey Gail. So here's the, the shekel from sir. I know that it looks like it says tire, but you actually pronounce that sir. And knowing that is very helpful because you'll hear everybody in the world pronouncing it tire, but that is sir, the capital of Phoenicia is who was issuing coins that looked like this on one side. So there's like a bunch of stuff going on. 
But first, let's say the two pillars, the pillars of Hercules, very important symbol, and then the tree with a serpent wrapped around it. And this looks a lot like a dollar sign. This shekel from Sir, I don't know how old it is, but you know we're in the BC range, not the not the uh, common era, right? So this serpent on the pole or on the tree, we talked about this. What's cool is we actually just got into this with Jason Quit. I think I may have brought it up last week's vibrant as well. That this is the Nehustan, or the you know just the word Nakash, the Hebrew word for serpent. By the way, Hebrew and Phoenician have a lot of overlap, same alphabet, some a lot of words in common. In the Hebrew, gematria, nakash, which is serpent and also bronze or brazen, is the same gematria value as Moses or memshen he, um, messiah, messiach, all of those words. They all equal 358, which is kind of interesting too, because 358 is like, Three plus five is eight. And then there's an eight. So that equals 16. That's the number of letters in the old alphabet that the Hebrew and the Phoenicians share. You got that eight, eight, very mercurial thing going on. Uh, but what I believe is most important to think about with this brazen symbol and, you know, even the fact that the philosophical, the symbol for philosophical mercury looks like a dollar sign as well or a, brazen serpent is that the old testament story about this is that the hebrews in the desert were getting bit by serpents fiery serpents at that and they were dying and moses was like god what do we do and they were told to raise the serpent onto a, a pole and that that would heal anyone who had been bit by the fiery serpents if they looked upon it so there's something up with this because <laughs> it, we're let's let's look at i think the next picture okay um this is a, a taller which is where we get the word dollar from joachim joachim which is one of the two pillars joachim stall which uh, is like the valley of joachim joachim and on one side you have christ crucified and on the other side you have the serpent raised up on the pole in the wilderness i think we're getting pretty obvious indication that a jesus is mercury and b <laughs> the serpent on the, the the staff is the same idea of Messiah as the Gematria would suggest as Jesus on the cross. So why I bring all this up is because if we go back to our very oldest coin or one of the oldest coins ever, where we have practically a dollar sign being made by this serpent wrapped around the tree, well, it starts to lend your you know lend to the idea that the whole in God we trust being put on the money as in the money is the people's God has been going on for a long time. That the money is the cure to your ailments. The money is your save, savior and salvation. You know, yada, yada, it goes on. I'll stop hogging the mic now, but I, I'm very interested to buy all this. No, exactly, dude. I think you got it. Um, and when you're dealing with uh, Freemasonic symbolism, there's always the twin pillars and there's an implied third pillar or first pillar, I would say, right in the middle, which is emblematic of the world axis. So to me, what I see is a world tree, and the palm tree was symbolic of the world tree. And so to me, it's no different than when you see like the kundalini serpents going up the spine. It's because there's a correspondence with our spine and the world axis. Our spine has 33 vertebrae, as an example. And so when I was recently decoding some Illuminati symbolism, in quotes, um, I went through the polar lens and the world axis lens. So 
I sent you a PDF. And at some point, if there's time, uh, I would love to show you guys some examples of what I've been decoding. And I think that there's a lot of world axis symbolism um, within the monetary system. And so when I see that line with that S, I, I think world axis personally. Hmm. <laughs> uh, I just got a really, really kind super chat from uh, Brazen. Moses. I mean, Braden Moses. Thank you, buddy. Wow. Thank you for that. That's like a wedding present level of super chat. Thank you so much. Wow. <laughs> you guys are really generous. Um, what you just said though, Mario, if you have a specific slide you want me to hit, just let me know. Um, it was actually like get three into it now or we can get into it later. Um, but if I do you, have whatever case. moment you want to talk about it, just let me know and then tell me what slide to go to. It is going to be, uh, through, the browser because it won't be like full screen, full screen. Cause I, it's three megabytes too big to be uploaded oh. to Streamyard. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. It's all good. Uh, if you want to pull still up slide fun. 20, slide 20, right all into right. exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. So I gave this presentation a couple of weeks ago and then, um, I I've been wanting it. to catch it. I just haven't had a chance. Oh, someone no. in the chat said, uh, you're a little uh, quiet on the gain, Mario. If you want to turn up your volume. That's oh yeah. That's a good idea. Yeah. Thanks Romy. We just want to hear more of that beautiful voice, baby. How about now? Is that a little bit better? Maybe on StreamYard, I can adjust my settings too a bit. That's, that's cool. So better, this should though. work itself out. Yeah. Yeah, no, man, you've been getting married and stuff <laughs> and running your show. <laughs> so you've had a lot going on. Um, but I just really, when I see that, vertical pole as you mentioned i think world axis and when you're looking at this illustration as an example you see the serpents going up this pole and if you want to scroll up just a hair you'll see that there's an eye on top of the pole in my opinion this is symbolic of the pole star you're literally seeing the pole going up to the pole star it's the uh it's the world axis it's the central pillar and in freemasonry when you see the central pillar that's what I see. I see um, things that are symbolic of the cosmic axis, which everything revolves around uh, the heavens revolve around. And so I think it's funny. I was just recently thinking about um, the whole the saying money makes the world go round. Um, that's a direct reference to the world axis, in my opinion. So you see the eye on top of the pole. It uh, to me, that is Polaris. And if you scroll down, you'll see just a uh, a closer up version of the same image, just so you guys can see what's going on up top. And so if you continue to scroll down, though, you'll see more Freemasonic artwork that depict three pillars. And so there's always a solar pillar, a lunar pillar, and this central pillar. This central pillar usually is associated with eye symbolism. And so I think that this is the eye of providence that you see in the pyramid within the capstone. And so eye symbolism generally is associated with this central pillar, which is the world pillar, which is Polaris, which is the eye of God, which is the eye in the sky, essentially. So what I have here for the next like four or five images are just more examples of Freemasonic art depicting the two pillars. And then the central pillar is associated with something else. So here you see the left pillar looks like it's associated with solar symbolism. The right pillar looks like it's associated with lunar symbolism. And what's going on with this central pillar with the all seeing eye, with the eye of providence, with the ladder going directly towards it? It's going towards um, the northern sky, which um, 
basically the world axis has been compared to um, essentially the stairway to heaven, basically. So those are just a few slides just to kind of illustrate some of what I'm talking about. That's, yeah, uh, and um, oh, I'll just bring this up to the front piece to the new Atlantis by good old Francis Bacon. Yes. Which is kind of exactly. alluding to the fact or not kind of like strongly alluding to the fact that whatever plans for this alchemical <laughs> uh, one world, new world order type of system, definitely America was key to those plans. And you have the pillars right here with the, the Argo, Santa Maria, whatever you want to call it right in between. But yeah, Romy hop in. Oh, I was just going to say that one picture with the, um, the central pillar as the ladder, there was that third pillar there. Um, and like what Tracy was going into a bit on the out, like strictly out. Cause she, she leaves for just like a, like solid, almost hundred pages of just, alchemical history and how alchemy works and like the different um descriptions of mercury and it's you know amazing and essential properties for the alchemical process both physically and you know Jungian style and whatnot but the, so that third um <clears throat> that third pillar that was like off in the distance like just slightly kilter to the stairway uh was kind of being described and it, like super necessary too, which is interesting because it's almost like, is that the most esoteric of the three or like the, the, the more etherical pillar? Um, and something else too, I just want to say this morning, I was lucky enough to go to this, uh, Wim Hof class that they offer at the local yoga studio and, uh, about fourth round in, I had an, a little, eye pillow on and like all the props and everything and fourth round into this breathing practice my complete darkness there was one like little like faintly like kind of shining uh like what looked like a like a light or and it turned into like a face and i was like yo show me your face (laughs) you know um without trying to break focus of the breath itself and that just kind of reminded me of everything you just said, like this central star, like this North Star on the top of your spine, that that inner eye, that inner light, that and that alchemical transformation that is required to do within in order to have the alchemical properties outside, which I think Tracy touches on a lot in the book of like, you know, is using blood a very essential part of creating a true philosopher's stone? Or is it, you know, is that, is that bad? Is it, you know, should you be working on the inner light and not necessary to have that blood? And it's like, what, what, you know, I I don't know. It's, it's so wild. Sorry. The FedEx truck is very loud and leaving. Um, (laughs) But yeah, a lot of things come up with the, the pillar and the sun and the light and the star and everything holding together on like on an internal symbology of our actual body and our, psychology but then everything of how systematically has been created as well and encoded and symbolically just infused in in everything in our reality let me read a few things here so a direct quote to get back to the brazen serpent which again why we're talking about that because the dollar sign is symbolically the brazen serpent the dollar sign that many 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 countries use uh and have for a long time so to quote the book She says, the crucified serpent was one of the central images featured in the alchemical manuscript, the sacred book of Abraham the Jew, famously translated by Nicholas Flamel. The crucified serpent represents the secret 
of the philosopher's stone that can transform anything into any other thing at will. All of this is related intimately to the history of the word dollar and the origin of the dollar sign. And so then we have a couple of really great comments here. Dylan says, you know, we're talking about Jacob's ladder, like we saw in the Freemasonic imagery that Mario showed us. Yak Ob literally means sun serpent. You can find more about that in uh, the probably the first and the third spirit world books. We'll have a, a lot of really good info on that. Then Marty over at Gnostic Academy. What's up, my brother Marty? He says the divisors of 358. And remember, 358 is Hebrew gematria for both serpent, bronze and Messiah. All those words are the same value, which matters a lot in biblical Hebrew. It matters quite a lot because there's not a huge lexicon of words and they intentionally make sure that words have, you know, gematria equivalency. So they both equal 358, the divisors of 358 sum to 540, which is the degrees of the pentagram, 540 degrees. The Sir Pent, Draco, guards the pole star with Sir meaning to protect. Three plus five plus eight equals 16, which reduces to seven. And 358 plus 7 is 365, number of days in the year, number of the sun. And that 365 days of the year thing is definitely important for, you know, maybe where we'll talk a little bit later in the conversation about the possible golden age of Kronos, the Saturnalia festival, the five dead days. The and that battle between Mercury and Saturn to get that extra five days, right? Or Thoth and uh, Ra, depending on like where, you know, whose mythology they play cards for it usually. <laughs> and those five days are where everything is born. So just to like, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, the, the the version of it, the Egyptian version, I think other versions are similar, is that there is a 360 day year. Ra forbid that anything be anything new be created <laughs> in the year. And then Tehuti or Thoth or Teut plays uh challenges raw to a card game and if he wins he's going to get 172nd of the year uh added to the year five days and he does and that ends up being like his trickster trickster god being the creator in a way because those are the five days that all of life and the earth is generated which you know i guess we'll just talk about that uh saturnalia saturnalia was a festival from I think the 17th, they say, to the 23rd of December. But either way, we're very close to those five dead days after the 360 perfect days of the perfect circle year. Mm-hmm. So that's the when, you know, we've crossed the winter equinox or the winter solstice and the regeneration of life is commencing. So, you know, as we go, I want people to think about how uh, we're syncretizing. It may seem like in some of this conversation, like Saturn and Mercury are at odds and alchemically, they are kind of a different concept, but in, uh, mystically, they're actually parts of the same being. <laughs> and that's very important. Like Saturnalia, you know, you, we think of modern judicial astrology and Saturn being like the the authority and like structure and discipline and all that stuff. But Saturnalia, the festival was like a level of debauchery on the same par with Bacchanalia, you know? So there's, Mm -hmm. and Bacchus is a Mercury character. So uh, yeah. What do you guys think of all that? 
I dig it, man. Yeah, I I like to think of these uh, planetary concepts as, uh, you know, I'm a, a hylozoist, or I think of it as all one big organism. These, you know, these planetary bodies conceptually and psychologically and spiritually, metaphysically, are like organs that serve uh, different purposes. And at a certain time of the year, these organs have to coordinate so that certain things can, uh, so the the life can flow. Um, and, you know, uh, it, it is all culminated there at the uh, winter solstice. But, you know, we have the three days at, the, uh, at both of the solstices, three up at the top and three at the bottom. Uh, if you're following the analema, which is much like a snake eating its own tail, uh, there's the three at the top, three at the bottom, but they are. They're all observed down there at the winter solstice. Uh, and and that makes kind of a double S. Uh, the figure eight of the analema is like two S's uh, on the caduceus, so to say. Uh, and also, I learned recently, I want to throw this out while we're still on the pole star thing, that uh, Dracon was a archon of Greece who uh, was very draconian. This is where the word draconian comes from. And he came along and started imposing laws such that every little violation was a death penalty, was capital punishment for every little thing. Yeah, oh, man, dude, the augers are going nuts on, on us right now. It's all his fault. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so Dracon started passing draconian laws, and he literally put them on wooden blocks so they could be read in all directions, so you didn't have any excuse that you didn't see the sign, and he lifted them up on poles on high. And these are draconian laws lifted up on a pole. And so Marty's comment about Draco, the snake that is circling around the pole star, is all fully embodied. It's like an anatomical uh, uh, perfecting of the myth, of this, uh, the source of draconian law. Uh, and being lifted up on a placard so that everybody could see from all directions. That's basically the nature of the pole star. Beautiful, beautiful. I love it. That's really interesting. Um, just oh, a few things. I, I, I forgot one more thing. One Please. thing about Dr uh, Dracon's laws, he would even give you capital punishment for something so simple as stealing a cabbage. And so this gives us the ingredients of the Garden of Eden story. And if you eat that fruit, you will surely die. And so uh, the snake lifted on high in a tree, having a fruit that is forbidden. And if you eat it, you surely will die. And instead they get exiled uh, is also correspondent to the Dracon uh, uh, Archon history. Sorry, Mario. No, dude, you're all good. Um, yeah, I was just going to mention a few things regarding Mercury and how Mercury is the messenger of the gods. It goes to and fro. Um, he's a psychopomp, so he goes between realms. And so in that way, it makes a lot of sense to associate money with mercurial symbolism because that's what you want money, money to do. You want it to flow. You want it to exchange hands. You want it to be passed around, things like that. I know this is 101 stuff for a lot of people here, but the uh, watery um, symbolism that kind of 
that comes with money, current and banks and things like that. Right. Um, Mercury also corresponds with green, specifically emerald green. Think the emerald tablets, think emerald city. And then obviously what color is our currency is our cash, right? It's green. Um, so Mercury also being related to the pole. There's some things I'll mention later on um, when we maybe get to some of the other slides that makes a lot of sense in this context that uh, world axis or geocentric symbolism plays a part in all of this stuff for sure. And so also about the so why is the brazen serpent the philosopher's stone? And there's a lot of reasons for this. I mean, your pineal gland in your brain actually sits upon uh, and what looks like a crucified savior, <laughs> you know, we should probably pull up an image of that. It's worth showing. I'll, I'll look for that. I didn't have it ready, but there's some reason to believe or reason to, uh, you know, people have explained that they have found that life and different molecules and different structures will spontaneously emerge in water with just sunlight. And I mean, I don't know enough about it to say more than this is like anecdotal, but it's possible that the ancients had some knowledge of this ability of the sun to generate, you know, ex nihilo, something from nothing out of water, water being the, you know, the, uh, the most mercurial substance in the realm, really, <laughs> you know, it's the OG of mercury, uh, mercury, the metal is a bit more of a specific thing. So anyway, that could be part of why we're looking at the sun because we, the brazen serpent is the sun as, and also it's, well, I should say the sun is like what it rides around in, but you know, you could say that the actual God itself is the, at the pole, but the sun is the emblem or the vehicle of, of the Supreme deity. That's for sure. And then there may be some capacity of this solar energy to generate life in the vessel that is water. And like on an, on a, just like a physical sense too, when you talk about mercury as water and swirling around the sun, when you quite literally boil water in a still, or you're getting your still ready to do an alchemical practice, you know, um, that there's, there's bubbles coming up. It's swirling it, you know, like you're, you're getting an actual fire to make that mercurial solution of the water. And depending on what you're putting into and boiling down and making to be that, that original chronos, right? The Cronus, the Cronus, the crow's nose, the lead into the gold. They say like they turned this base metal of lead into gold, right? That's like one of the basic, like what's alchemy lead into gold. Um, and the story of Saturn uh, that sh- that she talks about and um, that uh, the co-author of Falconelli's book uh, also talks about that she uh, brings up quite a few times in, in this story is that there's this constant battle between um, Saturn and Mercury. And there's like this push and pull factor, this push and pull. And that's like getting the to turn the lead to get that fire going that that game that they're playing on it because they're talking about these these mythical gods but they're also talking about what's happening in the still when you read old alchemical text they're talking about big grandeur things that are happening within their lab and they're actually trying a lot of these things and they're they're coding and symbolically putting in these stories and it's really interesting when they talk about the planets as a metal and you look at the alchemical metals that are tied to these different um 
tied to the different planets. And then you look at the old Greek stories and, and what have you. So there's astro theological tied stories, but there's also the physical, real laboratory stories that are being explained and the philosophical type of hermeticism. And so like she explains that in this book that, you know, not only are we going to create physical money, we not only are we going to be able to amalgamate minerals and make certain metallurgic specialties that would be the weight in people's pockets, you know, but it can't weigh them down. We must hold on to it for them and give them notes. Anyways, uh, you also have the mental aspect and the mental alchemy that was being played and being swooned upon all of us and the ritual magic involved in the psychology, the psychological takeover um, that we think that we need to play into the system. Both the physical alchemy is being created um, and also, you know, oil into gas is a very alchemical process. You know, the, those homies had a, a literal alchemist make get, like gasoline for the first time. Um, but anyways, you know what I'm saying? It's like the, there's like the astrotheological stories of the gods. There's the physical story of the gods. There's the, there's just, and it's, it's entangled in everything. And that's why hermeticism is at the base of all esotericism. Whether you want to put a Western stamp on it or an Eastern stamp on it, it is just the, it's just the universal rules and it blows my mind. I am sorry. I'm shutting up now. I think it's worth pointing out what Gabe said about the Polestar being Thuban, which is uh, in Draco at earlier age. I mean, there's just as much as I want to be skeptical of procession, there's just so much written on it. It seems to be like we just need to take it as a given or we have to throw out everything. <laughs> but before, here's what's interesting is we're talking about the brazen serpent. We're talking about the philosopher's stone. This is also the quintessence, the fifth element of alchemy, the original thing, the first thing that can become any other thing. So before Thuban, uh, in Draco was the pole star even further back. It actually was one of the stars of the Hercules constellation and Hercules. Not only is the thunderer, the sky, you know, the thunder God, the storm God, all of that. He's Thor. He's, you know, the whole nine, any <laughs> thunder wielding God, right? We we've established that in some previous recent episodes, but the alternate or one of the ways to look at the Hercules constellation is like a whirlpool or a swirling vortex or the primordial chaos. So that's why these thunder gods or storm gods are the god of the whirlwind and why, you know, you have versions of them from Elijah to Jesus being taken up in a cloud, being taken up in a whirlwind. And so possibly, you know, there's just as the pole shifts and as procession shifts, the mythology around the thing that's the origin of all other things shifts as well and then it all kind of becomes garbled together as we try to look at it all in the modern age with a very difficult chronology to piece together when something came from and who was saying it but you know that primal chaos like mario and i decoded uh this image of the primordial chaos and back then we didn't even realize that hercules was the primordial chaos and was once the pole star that there was like a churning milling action going on around way way back like gobekli tepe far back right right yeah that's really interesting um great little breakdown there too regarding procession um 
What I was going to say real quick regarding the Philosopher's Stone. So Tracy mentions uh, Azoth alchemy and the seven steps, which each step uh, has a word associated with it, with the uh, the given step, what it does. But the first letter of each step spells vitriol, V-I-T-R-I-O-L. And when you read these words together, um, it basically says, um, Go to the interior parts of earth and thou shalt find the hidden stone, the hidden stone in the center of earth. We're not talking about the center of earth. Visita interiora terre recti rectificando in venis occultum. Exactly. Uh, The hidden stone in the center of the earth. You got it. And so this hidden stone at the center of the earth isn't inside a spherical earth. It's towards the center of the plane, which is the northern portion of Earth. So in my opinion, philosopher's stone symbolism actually is related to lodestone symbolism, which is the belief that there's a magnetic stone at the center of Earth. Again, not towards um, the center of a sphere of a ball, but towards the middle of the plane which places it at the north, meaning the North Pole, meaning there's a relationship with the North Pole, the world axis and the pole star and everything else. So it's symbolic of going within. It's symbolic of going towards the sacred center, in my opinion. I think the same thing is going on with the Holy Grail as well, is that the Holy Grail is at the center of the earth. And so there's receptive stuff going on uh, in the northern portion of earth. And there's also projective stuff going on there, like uh, Mount Maru and whatnot. So that's yes, just my and opinion. Higgins says that Earth or Eartha is a corruption on Arga, and that in the Ooh. microcosm you have the story of the boat r- maintaining and preserving the animals, but in the macrocosm the Earth is the Arga, and it's the you know it's the Ark, it's the <laughs> the Ark of the Covenant, and so at the center of the boat that floats upon the primal waters of creation is not only the mast or the lingam which is also the logos or the lingua, but the eros or the savior or the Christ or the Horus or whoever it is on the boat is, you know, in the middle of the boat. So the hidden stone in the center of the earth is also the erotic force, which is the savior of, uh, or preserver of life because that's the, what causes the spark between the two pillars of mother and father that then generates the, the true alchemical marriage or wedding, which is conception or uh, fertilization is the right word. You got it, dude. Uh, poles and holes. So notice that in the center of this emblem, uh, there's the symbol for Mercury right there. Right. And so above Mercury, you see the Holy Grail. And then from the Holy Grail, you see solar symbolism and lunar symbolism. And so whenever I see a third thing connected to lunar mm. symbolism and solar symbolism, I just I think it's a northern reference. I think it's a sacred center world axis reference. And so here you can see emanating coming out from that grail. And And so that's what I see. I was just going to say that. And there's that little globus cruiser like right in the middle of this is supposed to be like Earth and like up top is where, you know, all this weather patterns are happening or whatever and the water is getting poured from the heavens down here. Is that little globus cruiser? Is that supposed to be like the, the stone? Because I'm always chasing these little these little hand grenades here. Interesting. Three. I hadn't thought about that. It's very possible. I mean, I can kind of make sense out of that. Uh, notice well, me, too, right, that there's a seven-pointed star 
right underneath. And then there's lots of septenary symbolism related to the North with Ursa Major and stuff. Let me ask you this. Okay. So a while ago, Marty said in the chats, he said, Mercury, Mercury is the only planet without an opposite. Mars is Venus, Jupiter is Saturn, Sun is the moon. Mercury is the ring of opposites, mercurial work. But what about Earth? Is Earth and Mercury, uh, do they, do they the swing together? <laughs> I mean, if you think that it depends on if you're on a ball or if you're, if you're on a, in a realm, I guess. So yeah. from the perspective of not being on a ball flying through a spinning void, then, you know, the ground beneath our feet is not the same thing as the lights in the sky. No, I, I don't mean that either. I mean, I mean, do mean like, uh, out, uh, like philosophically, alchemically, because the, the concept of like this mercurial work, this mercurial fluid, um, <clears throat> flows like the blood, you know, water and blood being interchangeable, flowing like the blood inside our body. And some of the, some of the alchemical texts speak of like, containing the wild mercury in order to maintain it to receive that full kundalini experience that that inner work the great work is to maintain and contain the mercurial figure the mercurial philosophical and that inner fire and so i'm wondering if in the sense if we are earth and we are that body then our opposite would be mercury and that figure that inner ego maybe almost in containing that that um to do that inner alchemy i wonder if that's uh you know yeah. And I just kind of the vibe I got when, when, when he popped that comment up, I was like, but what if Mercury is us and it's a twin? Well, it's, it's really interesting, dude. Well, um, now so. we're talking about placenta stuff because in, <laughs> I mean, in my, in my professional opinion, the, the arc that you write in on is the arc that preserves you into the new world is the placenta. That's the boat that you get to the new world on. And it is your divine, it is your twin. Literally, genetically, it's your exact twin. So if, you know, I mean, this is a highly condensed description, but we've talked about this in the past, but if there's this living creature that has your exact DNA and you're mm-hmm. born and grow with it, you're, you grow with it and then you're born into this world and then it dies, does it still exist as a spiritual entity? Does its life force continue to exist the way other living beings go on to be what we call jinn or uh, ghosts or spirits or what have you. And is that your guardian angel? Is that the thing on your shoulder that is either giving you good advice or bad advice, depending on how well you integrated the trauma of being separated from it, you know? Yeah, man. That's, go ahead, sir. Go ahead, sir. Well, uh, I want to do a huge weave on a, a lot of what's been laid out. Um, so one of the woodcuts that Tracy brings forward that is so alchemically enriching to ponder is the particular woodcut of Saturn cutting the legs off of Mercury. And this means so many things all at once. Thank you. Oh, you had a locked and loaded. Look at you. All right. So many things all at once. For one, for one it ta- it, this is speaking towards grounding an electrical charge uh, and being cautious around uh, electricity. It also is speaking towards, and Tracy goes in on this in depth in her works about, uh, stealing the, uh, fruits of future generations, the labor and the, the, uh, providence of future generations. So that's what, uh, you know, this debt based system is all about. We've, uh, bought money 
for today, or we've bought whatever alchemical symbols for today at the expense of generations who are not yet born. And furthermore, this is symbolizing the cut, the cut of the placenta that it traps or whatever uh, ensnares. Cutting the, the umbilical cord, yeah. Cutting the umbilical uh, that ensnares future generations into uh, two-dimensional paperwork. Uh, and it pap- also captures the, the mercury when you do this, Gabe, because in the hospital, when they cut it before all the blood drains from the placenta to baby, right. well, what's where's the blood? It's staying in that other side, that that vessel. And then right. what goes on with the placenta and with that blood, which is very important in this alchemical conception, especially Unfortunately, you know, baby's blood is being talked about by all these guys, especially Nicholas Flamel and whoever this Abraham the Jew guy is. So, you know, is that also I think that you might be onto something that the cutting of Mercury's legs is the cutting off of the uh, umbilicus before baby receives all the blood from placenta, because what do legs let you do? They let you run. And the Mm -hmm. blood would be running from one side to the other to baby. But now it's cut off. Yes. So the the lotus birth is uh, keeping it intact until it's no longer running, till it stops moving. And when it does that, the umbilicus actually turns white. And this hit a chord for me because we know about uh, so many aspects of uh, things turning white miraculously in biblical scripture. Uh, Moses puts his hand in his in his robe and pulls it out and it's ashen white like a leper. And all the lack of purity. And all the people marvel, and then he puts it back in and pulls it out, and it's back to normal again. Also, the Mormons have a mythology about when you experience a conversion, when the the miracle of the gospel uh, 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 transmutes a uh, indigenous person, that their skin turns white, and they've kind of whitewashed that part of their their gospel away. It's not it's in it's law not, too. White and law mean something different than skin color. Right. And so when a person when a person sometimes has a spiritual experience or sees a ghost or whatever a trauma, they will turn white. Their eyebrows will turn white. They'll have a white lock. Their hair will turn white. And this is called circumscripta. Circumscripta is the word for converting a person for the, the miraculous uh, conversion of the gospel and its effect washing over them. Uh, and that is fascinating because the the placenta is transmuted into white paperwork. They become a white persona. And so there is also a transmuting in this circumscripta at the birth process. Funny enough, uh, the story of Mary Magdalene, you know, a fellow alchemist, the, her, when Christ has was re-risen, the, she turned eggs from white into red, as opposed to the other way around. She brought had brought in eggs and then they went from being white into red, uh, which is symbolically alchemical, which is kind of funny. So there's that kind of back and forth play there. And also a white is a ghost or spirit of the land, as in like a, a jinn or a deceased human that is taking up residence in a certain location, a la ghost. So there's that, you know, because what is the what is the corporate personhood? And we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves in terms of the history of money. So I want to take it back. I'm going to pull this. I'm going to read it a little bit. But the corporate personhood in the modern citizenship is very different than personhood in maybe Athens and uh, 
you know, creating that paperwork two-dimensional ghost is a big part of the sorcery of converting your time to gold for somebody else. And yeah, we we'll we'll cover all that off a little better, but I want to want to back us up a little bit, back it up. Yeah. So, yeah, let's First let's, of all, good idea. <laughs> you know, the thing I think to keep in mind is that alchemy is you know, before we before we got into any of this mysticism of philosophical alchemy and all the terminology that is unfortunately <laughs> shared lexicon between like astrotheology and alchemy, which can cause a lot of confusion, probably mm-hmm. kind of purposefully. The original alchemy would be from mining and learning how to turn the dross or just, you know, random pebbles and garbage into precious metals. That is a big thing of alchemy. So turn that's the real turning lead to gold originally is the dross from the mining process and getting all of the little flakes out and melting those together. And then I want to talk about what's a really important part of all this weave is the metalurgy aspect. So the first, you know, mythologically in the in the Abrahamic tradition. But what we're talking about is going to apply to versions in other mythologies that are, you know, syncretizable with this character, Cain. Cain is the first metallurgist. He's the first smith, right? So this is something Tracy talks about in the book. But let me just go over this real quick. Cain is basically the same word as coin. And a coin, as we know, is money, but also to coin a phrase, for example, is to smith it. That is, you've made it. Also, uh, you know, we were talking about that Phoenician shekel. A shekel is like a uh, a word for a bushel of wheat originally. And so wheat and grain and then corn. Corn is basically like uh, etymologically, cane and corn are very much a philological match to each other especially once you get into the mythos of the seed the corn myth being allegory or uh basically syncretizable to the whole idea of the arga or the savior that goes down into the into the earth or into the underworld or into the ark and then emerges in the new world a prominent example being adonis a solar deity who is birthed from his mother mira or mary uh, as a myrrh tree (laughs) He's a seed off of that. And then he emerges as the beautiful Adonis later after spending some time in the underworld. But back to this Cain, this first metalsmith and the one who kills Abel. Abel is an anagram for Baal, interestingly enough. He is, this word Cain is also Cohen, which is priest. It is also basically the same word as Khan. Khan as in K-H-A-N, like king or a ruler. Which you know d- demonstrates through philology how the old kings were the head of the priests. The the Khan was the Cohen, the head Cohen, and also this entire thing with money back in the day and now, but even more now than ever, it's a it's a con. <laughs> like it's a it's con artistry. It's a confidence game. So all of that is very interesting. But the fact that we still call money bread. And we have this cane, corn, grain. I mean, there's a C to G 
uh, in philology, C's can become G's happens all the time. Some languages have no distinction between the two and it's interchangeable. And so cane and grain thus bread and the same, you know, we're, we're calling them Phoenicians for convenience, but whoever this maritime empire was, Etruscans, ancient Italians, Mediterranean Europeans, the Gauls, a lot of words can describe these, this maritime empire of the ancient world, but they, you know, they were spreading around a lot of the techniques uh, and, and also the exporting and trading of the grains from, for example, t- the tin and the grains and in, uh, in Britain, there's that. And, you know, they taught people's cheese making and what do we call money? Call it cheddar. <laughs> like people call it cheddar. There's a lot of links here to whatever this uh, ancient maritime empire was and coinage and the priest class, priesthood that was you know the symbols and the, the the techniques of that taught to people peoples all over the place um and the the rulership of those colonies so it, it goes it goes on and on with that yeah I mean, uh, just an extension um of kind of symbolic thoughts uh from the uh wheat sort of angle is the idea that um libra has a lot of interesting connections to money and so this is where we get lb from this is actually where we get the uh, octothorpe or the pound sign from and so obviously there's a number of countries where they refer to it not as dollars but as pounds and it was because uh this libra occurred during the harvest season so then you are actually wanting to weigh your harvest so you can trade and sell and do all these different things um also mercury too just because i'm thinking about it um you know it, he was the um deity for merchants Right. Amongst a lot of other things for a lot of other people and occupations and stuff. But uh, merchants highly revered Mercury. And so anyway, so the Libra uh, weighing of wheat thing is very, very interesting. Libra comes right after Virgo. Virgo is associated with wheat. Um, Oftentimes she's holding wheat when you look at Virgo in the night sky. uh, If you're looking at artistic renderings of her and everything else. So I just thought I would throw that out there. Some interesting connections there. That's that I I was kind of getting this vibe of um <clears throat> like when you got the shekel sounds a lot like shackle right and that time being money hold down by the Saturnian overlords that the time lords right and this constant battle between Mercury and and uh and Kronos or this this balance of time for money which is a <laughs> such a sad construct but we're so, seems so like genetically imbued in us. That, that we, if we're slacking off or you're not, you're not filling your head with knowledge or research or constantly doing something, um, you know, you might, might think too much about your thoughts and I don't know, maybe do some breathing practices and have some crazy inner light shine in the middle of your head, but whatever. Um, you know, you also, so the shekel and the shackle, but the coin and the cane and going back to the Egyptian mythos of, uh, the cane of Osiris and one of his two, uh, things that we would hold one of his two talismans if you will his uh his crook and you know osiris uh and isis are are seemingly the same character as they like transmute into each other um and she brings up the dis uh memberment the disbodiment of of body parts and the importance of blood and this transmutation between the uh mercurial figure with when you look at the story of these 
you know, it's Osiris is like, a, you know, a man and Isis is the woman. And but they're the same when she injects the golden phallus into herself when she finds that. And it just reminds me that then that cane, that crook turned into Isis's shaft of wheat. And this overarching story of like, you know, we come from the prima materia, which is woman. There was a matriarchal society that ruled um, at one point, and it was the goodness, um, even if it was in certain parts of the world and not all over at one exact time. I personally am fully on the belief that we were a complete and beautiful, interesting, at least matriarchal society where we, we venerated the um, the triple moon goddess and, and these types of things. And I don't buy you- that it was paradisical. I think that there's been, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just oh, want you're to talking about the gold, the golden age. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know about, I don't necessarily I know don't, about that. I want to push back a little bit, not to say like poo poo on you. I love you, but you know, I think that rule by rule by women might be worse. <laughs> well, this, this, no, I don't know sorry, about everybody. that, man. Uh, I, I let back and let ladies take the lead and it usually works out pretty well. So um, I, I love, you know, I, I was raised by a single mother. I've been in, uh, abound women a lot on, and my, it, anyways, that's a whole other conversation. I'm talking about looking at the ancient Celtic goddesses, right? And these ancient Celtic religions and, you know, before the, the church came through and changed a lot of these people's ways, they venerated a matriarch. Um, and there's this story that she tells in the book about how the coins were traded through the goddess, through this, this form of prostitution, if you will, for the wheat. And so I'm saying that that's symbolic of the Isis and Osiris story. The coin. Can you, became, like, can you elaborate on that a little more? Like what you're talking about there? Cause that's yeah, very, very, have, very important. Yeah, I think part I have it marked, marked in here. Um, you and know, so for people so, that don't know I mean, on the rising from the ashes shows, we're covering specifically ancient Celtic. Uh, mysteries for the, the past couple months because uh, we do specific monthly deep dives on areas. And so I've been diving into the Celtic stuff and uh, you know, the Twata de Danan and everything. And it's just, it's just, it's crazy. Um, I I don't have the page bookmarked in here, but uh, well, let's just, I might like, find let, it. Let's just summarize that. The idea being that in the, well, first of all, what you're talking about with the, the goddess tradition, there is plenty of evidence that, you know, the priest priest game was really a priestess game and that like the divinatory arts and fortune telling and oracling and all that was, and you know, it makes sense because in sort of a hunter gatherer mindset, the, the females being more the gatherer, they're more cued towards like picking out something out of a, a field of, you know, looking at the whole field at once and picking out the details a la astrology. Like that does seem like a more feminine art. Um, Odin and the Volupsa, you know, <laughs> the, the book of the, the, basically the book of the Volva, he's dressing in women's clothing to get his power, his magical powers. There's a lot of that. But the idea that you were alluding to is that the origin of coinage mm-hmm. was that you would to <laughs> you'd make a that a guy would make a donation to the temple and then that donation would be in wheat and he would receive a coin or a shekel for his bushel or shekel of wheat and then be able to trade that to one of the temple females for pro- basically sacred prostitution in the sense that they were reenacting this 
uh, erotic act basically to symbolically help the land become more fertile. You know, everyone was <laughs> conned into this coin trick, I would say, because I do think, I mean, I do think it's kind of a con. I don't think you need to have sex with a priestess to generate more wheat in your field. I really don't. Um, you know, maybe it wasn't a bad system. I'm, I'm not making a moral judgment on it, but the idea being that the very, very original, according to the historical narrative, purpose of coins at the at the onset was for prostitution. and that's literally what most people are engaged in when it comes to how like making money right now, whether or not, maybe it's not sexual prostitution, but there is like a selling of yourself for money. You know, that's something that's going on. Everybody is now in this type of commerce where before this alchemy began, before this mythology ran in this direction, people just lived and existed. and. There wasn't sort of like this time is money belief that has become so pervasive and uh, in a lot of ways, very dangerous to our health and well-being. I got the the exact uh, part from the book, if I if I can read it here to give everybody just a little bit of insight. Uh, uh, what was going on at this time, 3000 B.C., uh, now, there were a few examples of predecessors, but really historians consider the origin of, of coin money to be around 3000 BC in the temples of Ishtar, ancient Mesopotamia. It was created for the use in public religious rite of sacred prostitution. The priestesses of the fertility goddess served her by offering themselves as representatives of her to male worshipers. It was thought that if the men simulated intercourse with the goddess, this would simulate Fertility in the land, a very important part of the ritual, was the donation that occurred beforehand. The worshiper was expected to make <clears throat> offerings to the goddess in the form of wheat. This was fitting since wheat was the main agricultural product that they were asking the goddess to simulate in the production of. And during the religious festivals, festivals, worshippers would bring a portion of their yearly wheat crop to the temple. After being symbolically offered to the patron, god or gods, the offering were used to feed all of the priests and priestesses and the temple support staff. In exchange, they received one coin for each bushel of wheat, and each coin would entitle them a visit with one of the priestesses. This is how the coin name got shekel, which means bushel of wheat. The coin featured a sheaf of wheat on one side and a depiction of Ishtar on the other side. And bread, money, <laughs> there that's you go. Dope. That's some tickets and tokens right there. <laughs> but you don't you don't get to take your prize home with you. <laughs> <laughs> uh regarding Kane real quick, uh I just want to mention that there's this whole idea that Kane was um the first of a line of like dark magicians or that mm. he was the first person that like initiated the left-hand path because he killed his brother. So I know that this is a thread within Freemasonry and some other groups that they believe at least symbolically, magically, ritualistically, they come from the lineage of Cain, which I think is really interesting. And then also too, I mean, there's a lot to be said regarding uh, the Freemasonic connection with money, especially modern money. Right. But um, this is why I believe they refer to each other as brothers is because it's a, it's a reference to Cain and Abel, which I think is intriguing as well. And then just to kind of riff off of that for a second, 
second. Uh, the lover's card, my understanding is, is that at one point it was actually called the brother's card and it was a reference to Cain and Abel. And the lover's card is uh, well known for corresponding with Mercury uh, because uh, it's ruled by Gemini, the brothers, the twins. Well, we're, we need to flesh that out a lot more, especially in the concept of the scapegoat. But I think it would be best before we go there, if we get into just more of the general, you know, the goats in, in general. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I think, great idea. I think, well, and then Mario, another interesting point to add to that, like if we're going to go way back to the, the mythological beginning, the Jewish mysticism claims that the Garden of Eden serpent, actually there were two snakes in the garden that Lilith and Samuel were Samael <laughs> were two halves of the same hermaphrodite, hermaphroditic being. And, you know, this is, and so were Adam and Eve, that they were one being that got split in two. That's uh, and there's the story of Zeus splitting primordial man who was originally like two gendered. Right. So what's important about this uh, Mercury character is that it goes both ways and it's sometimes it's even Aphrodite with the a, a phallus or hermaphrodite and this two serpents or the serpents Samuel Samuel and uh, Lilith being two halves of the same hermaphroditic being you know this is reminiscent of the two of every kind and that all like I was trying to explain this I think on last week's vibrant how there's an idea that the reason I think I got this from Faber, uh, George Faber, Pagan Idols, old ass book, that the reason why there's a animal symbolism for the god and goddess of basically every animal in creation has at some point symbolized them is the idea that the whole creation is actually the body of this great primal papa or as Faber calls him, the demon Lord <laughs> demon being a reference to the spirit of the dead hero, who is the primal parent or both, both parents in one Adam Cadmon is a phrase that you'll hear to describe that. So anyway, uh, there, there's a lot of this hermaphroditic thread of the, the deity, you know, I've got a lot of imagery of that, but let's jump forward in time from, you know, the age of those maritime Empires of the Bronze Age. Remember, bronze and serpent are the same word in Hebrew. So when we're talking about the Bronze Age and those that maritime priesthood, commerce, you know, yes. corporation, whoever they were, that was taking the symbolism all over the world, even to the Americas, that you know, that's the Serpent Age. Like that's what I'm calling it in my head. The Bronze Age is the Serpent mm -hmm. Age to me now because those words are, are I think that might be what's being encoded. But um the Templars, right? Uh Anyone want to introduce us to the Templars when they were operating, what their, you know, what their model was and how they changed the game forever? I think, I mean, a there's big, a lot there, a but one. this is so crucial to understanding the modern economic system. Well, uh, I have some slides if you just want to pull it up and let Gabe talk, but just for visual yeah. aids so people can see what some of the Templar symbolism is about. Yeah, man. Hello. Yeah. So this will this will weave us right into uh, scapegoat technology real quick. So in in your ganja garden, the uh, sacrificial plant is the second you see a hermaphrodite in your in, with your goddesses. You got to cut that shit out. You got to do it careful too. You got to put a trash bag on top of the hermaphrodite so you black bag it. 
and you make sure none of that pollen gets around the garden and you take it out back and you execute it, uh, execute order 66 and you kill that hermaphrodite pronto because it will convert the other plants uh, and turn them into no longer goddesses. And so a hermaphrodite is, uh, is divinely decreed. It's mandatory that the hermaphrodite is the perfect energy for the sacrifice. And so having a hermaphroditic scapegoat is like you have permission. No, you don't have permission. It's a, it's a priority that you sacrifice the hermaphrodites so that that shit doesn't start spreading around and catch like wildfire. So I just thought I would th- uh, weave that into the scapegoat, uh, which was the, uh, you know, the Baphomet that we're all talking around here. That's yeah. right. Got to get rid of them. Got to nip that <laughs> shit in the bud. <laughs> well, it's not really about getting rid of them. It's just not making them. <laughs> right, right, right. Oh. Uh, but then, but think about hey, this. Speech? If now here's the thing though, that also if they are if it's um if it's incentivized to get rid of them, then that makes them the best front uh soldiers to put them at the mm-hmm. front line of the war because it's God's decree that they can't be proliferated or you can't let that shit get out of hand. So that's something to really consider. And I'm not I'm just saying this is, you know, historical and uh uh religious zealotry. Uh, something that kind of caught my uh, ear earlier when we were chatting about this specifically, you know, um, and, and as like a sacrifice or the scapegoat and whatnot, like um, is like that symbol of, of birth when the placenta is cast aside and the umbilical cord is cut. Um, there's the scapegoat is the one that gets to leave. Uh, it still gets to live and the sacrifice is that firstborn. So it's almost like, you know, this escape goat is like escaping this sacrifice that would go to Baal, who is a goat gaudy type of figure or Baphomet or what have you. And Baphomet is obviously very intertwined into the, uh, the Templars. Um, and, and Tracy explains that well in her book. Um, that like the symbol of birth, like, you know, this, like if the womb itself is this life, if the, the, the mother, the prima materia is the womb before you come into the world and you are, uh, you're automatically split from that twin of yourself, then one of you is the scapegoat and the other one is the sacrifice. And the scapegoat has to go into the world where this time is money, where the existence is starting to split. And, you know, as, as, as the, um, the placenta itself is very, I guess would be considered like, you know, that hermaphroditic self, but baby babies, I, I, this is such a crazy topic, but babies are like slightly hermaphroditic in the sense that like their innocence and like, you know, their, their bodies are small. And I think that's why a lot of like the child sacrifice that is deep in this book, you guys, like we haven't touched on it really. Um, and the blood sacrifice being so important, um, I think has to do with the fact that babies are considered more of, uh, you know, not yet really yet defined in that sense or, uh, yeah. So, well, okay. So as Tracy explains the, the, all that, the, the belief amongst the ancient alchemists, supposedly, uh, yeah, I'm going to get to this, Dylan. It's very important, but the belief amongst the ancient alchemists was that the menstrual blood more or less would coagulate 
into a baby in the womb. <laughs> uh, it would mix with the, the tincture, which was the, the male fluid, and then it would coagulate in the womb mm-hmm. to create life. So the idea being that like, this is not only uh, a prima materia of sorts, but bec- they call it the starfire because as you observe with human be- human beings born at a certain time under certain influences of the stars, if you will, then this f- starfire menstrual blood fluid would be also, you know, or birth after birth uh, material would be considered like it would all, not only would it be, a potent generator of, of life or contain a lot of life force or could be converted into any other thing in, you know, in their thinking, but also it would have perfectly captured the essence of that time that you harvested it for lack of a better word. Yeah. And it's part of the, and here's a speculative part, right? Because at this point in time where we're at, we, are so far away from when these alchemical texts were like written and then we're like speculating a lot. And which is just, that's the only thing we could do with ourselves and our creativity. Right. But like, so you look at it and you're like, okay, so these things were important and sacred to whatever practices they were practicing. How, what were they doing with it? Is it symbolic? You know, were they actually putting this placenta or the blood in an actual still and actually boiling these things with certain uh, other materials to extract something to create one of the uh, one of the three major philosopher's stone, which is the little man or the homunculus itself is the blood necessary to create that. Or are they just talking about the actual ritual of birth and creating their own child? You know, the alchemical wedding between the man and the woman. Is it just talking about sex and not any form of sticking an actual baby in there? is a sacrifice and ejaculation into a toilet bowl, you know, or something like that. Like, is it so extreme that they had to use these crazy visuals? Is it dark or is it, is it a symbol of, of sex? I think, I think it's probably a little of both. I think, I think sacrifice definitely did happen, but also I think alchemy, a lot of times talking about the sun and the moon and everything is love in general and creating a baby and the little man, the homunculus is your, that's, that's just birth. Well, yeah, and remember, Eros is one of the original saviors of, you know, ancient trinities. Even philologically, Eros becomes the same word as Horus or even Chris or Christ or Christos. Yeah, and one other thing to consider is they uh, to sacrifice a baby who may not have been perfect or had the best chance to survive. Uh, for whatever reason, a lot of people fully believed that that life force of the baby would just come back on the next rotation, would just catch the next round on the merry-go-round, and that the, and waste not, want not, so to say. So uh, culturally to them, there was a lot of respect around these practices, whereas, you know, we clutch our pearls today. Uh, but they literally thought that, and I, and I speculate, as you said, that maybe is, as long as the baby... Uh, if they made the decision before the baby was baptized, then maybe it was guaranteed that the baby would come back for on the next go around. And so there was a moment of decision uh, that this baby's not going to be saved or sent it or taken up into the, you know, to the granddaddy in the sky. And we're going to put this baby back and maybe it'll come back perfect next time around. 
Yeah, and I think also a lot of the uh, grosser practices is probably not necessarily what the ancients were doing, but misinterpretation of of symbolism is very possible. Uh, and also when it comes to even like scriptural or scriptural accounts of things like putting the baby in the fire, Moloch, like, like all this, you know, these are histories that are from scripture. So they're not history. I mean, we don't know that that was really happening. There's a lot that we don't know in terms of assumptions that this stuff was really practiced by the ancients. It's impossible to be sure about that. Uh, do modern day people that I self-identify as like Satanists and all that probably do all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah, I'm sure that they do. But to get back to the Templars and <laughs> yes, yeah, originating the banking yes. system, yes. I want to talk about that because, you know, we are talking occult origins of money. So, you know, yeah. to probably a lot of people in the chat already know this tale, but in the Crusades, the Templars were said to have discovered something under Jerusalem or the founders of the, the, the five guys that found the Templars. The, the lore is they found something under underground in Jerusalem that gave them the secrets to some kind of wealth or some kind of power. Well, what did they do after the crusade was set up a banking route. If basically a, a, a type of modern banking system where because you know back, back as Tracy puts it in the book, the reason why or the reason why this was useful was because when money was in bullion and coinage, interesting word by the way, bullion, especially that we just showed the bullheaded Moloch from you know the age of Taurus. No, I think a lot of the I symbolism know. of the bullheaded Moloch and then coming into the goat-headed deity is indicative of a transfer between the age of Taurus to the age of Aries. And then, you know, again, like I was mentioning with the pole star, more ancient traditions get reclaimed or picked up again in a later time where processionally, astrologically, they don't even apply anymore. But, you know, that point is missed, right? So we have this goat head stuff going on when it's not even technically the age of Aries anymore. We're, you know, firm into the Piscean age during the Holy Roman Empire, which is at the point of the Crusades. They create a system, though, where people can bring their money or their their physical gold and goods. Give slides here, Roman. Yeah. <laughs> the Knights Templar were warrior monks. They invented a way to move money around safely. They kept money in their castles, but they gave the person a note to hand in at a castle in another country called a chit, which is like a check. Same word. The knight. And then they would encipher this check so that exactly the details would be only readable by the banker at the next castle over. And then you make your withdrawal for your bullion. And that system was very, very profitable for the Templars, right? They ended up amassing so much wealth and power that they became a threat to, uh, who was it? Philip the fair that decided to uh, take him out. Oh, you're muted there, Roman. No, I'm not. I'm not sure uh, of Philip the Fair. Uh, sounds like definitely a name of somebody who was like, "That's not fair." Yeah, he's like, a fancy uh, pants boy who wanted to join their <laughs> secret club, and they didn't let him. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I found that 
this was probably like as I started reading the book, Tracy does such a good job at having such deep gnosis on something and laying it out in a way that's that's easy for anybody on any esoteric level of understanding to really uh, get into. She slowly rolls the ball. I mean, obviously, she gets into some crazy shit once you start to really pick through the pages. But in the beginning of the book, she does go over it just simply, you know, the Templars and how how the money was created. Though, if you go to the Wikipedia of the history of money, predating everything in the Templars itself is the paper note coming from China and even a Babylonian tower that was found in an ancient site that had original laws dating back thousands of years. And one of the laws was loaning and lending money. And so... There's really no in the like, at least unlike the very exoteric level of the history of money, there's really no date or time when it truly, truly had actually been been started because it was always going on to some sense or degree of sorts. Um, it's it, it's insane. But the, the cipher is, you know, it's fully fully there. They they had cipher notes, which is just like bank notes. They created the bank. Uh, Created everything that we know as the banking system, and they called the the checks that you get uh, were called checks because they would wear these like iconic checkerboard aprons when they would wear it at work. And you see this guy over here. He says, "Hey, I'm I'm Chuck. And if you got a check, I got a buck." <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was fun stuff, but but yeah, uh, they and then she goes into the book like a lot deeper into the actual like the practices of the, the the sex rituals that were going on uh that are depicted in different uh reliefs of uh of the templars and so you had like the the level the face front on society where they were giving people money they were helping they were protecting from robbers right but then you have like these secret parties that they were having with all their money and their lavishes where they were throwing um you know bushels of gold and goodness and also potentially you know sacrificing whatever they wanted to to their god baphomet that's what tracy twyman gets into in the book about the templars and so that kind of just goes to show us what we're kind of dealing with today in the sense that you have these people on a political level who are here seemingly for the good of you know mankind right well not really that's what a lot of people think though uh, and then on you have this like secret side of them where it's like what are they doing with all their money like what's going on at night though like what are they doing when they're not on the podium telling us that they're going to give people jobs and give people things and they're protecting us from robbers and protecting us from the people who you know don't like us because they like us because you know we're you know we're, we're good and they they love us like family you know what i mean yeah. Right. I, I want to throw in like this is the source of, you know, we still use checks checking. This is the source of the word chattel and the fact that they consider their uh, your possessions are chattel. You know, these are assets that you would list when you file your taxes. Um, and also, uh, this is still in play today in many, many ways. Uh, one example is the fact that, you know, your uh, a check has many codes on it, has barcodes that you can't read. Even your driver's license on the front side, you can read all that stuff. It's all it's all legible to the to the public. Are but you, you saying turn your it, birth certificate is a check? 
The backside of all these things is the private side, and it is on the private side where the codes are to be found. A driver's license has like three codes. There's a, a barcode, a scan code, and a, and a bunch of letters and numbers. You don't know what they mean. And your uh, birth certificate, same thing. You turn your birth certificate over, and it literally looks like the green code from the matrix that runs uh, vertically. Uh, it's all there and it's still in play today. So I just thought I'd throw all that out when we're talking about ch- chets and chettles and chattel and checks. And uh, please remind me, guys, I can't remember if she said this uh, in Money Grows on the Tree of Knowledge or the Solomon's Treasure book or elsewhere, but the idea of fractional reserve banking and how you can lend out if somebody puts in $100, you can lend out, I believe it's uh, 90%, right? You only keep 10% of the bank. Isn't that the deal? And so then you can lend out 90%. Um, and so that was something that they got into over time is this. Yes. Whole the Templars thing. created that system. Exactly. Is exactly that right. what they found under Jerusalem? Is that the wealth, you know, the so, treasure they found was this idea of the 10th, you know? Right. I, yes. Nine tenths of the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, brass is nine tenths copper and one tenth ten. And so this this all plays into tithing in the one tenth of your income going to the church. Uh, well, that's it, it. You nail it. Yep. Yeah, exactly man. Right. It, it's so Say fascinating. 10. Say ten. And so <laughs> it's yeah, an occult formula. Exactly. Yes. So uh, ten is uh, the city of London in Britain, where the ten came from, and the name uh, copper. I learned this recently. Uh, the name of copper uh, is correspondent with its source, uh, the island of Cyprus, which is mythologically where Attis was uh, cast down with his, uh, with his schlongalingo ding-dong chopped off. Uh, very fascinating location right there. And I think a lot of uh, uh, European bloodlines uh, would like to have sanguinity to the island of Cyprus. I think it's a sacred location uh, through history. Also, just wanted to mention real quick, because I do love Tracy Twyman and her work, but uh, this initial Baphomet research inspired her to write a book called Clock Shavings, where she really gets into Baphomet and her communications with an entity called Baphomet. And then she followed that up with an even bigger book about Baphomet called uh, Baphomet, the Temple Mystery Unveiled. And she co-wrote this with Alexander Rivera. And so if you guys want to learn more about Baphomet, uh, these are the sources. And that's a to. big one. That's a chunky one. I realized the Baphomet <laughs> book was that big. Um, I'm pretty sure Orange Man Bad changed the rules so that the 10% is no longer needed in the reserves <laughs> anymore. Gotcha. <laughs> I can see that. I bet he changed him for the worse. So the, <laughs> you know, the idea that tithe, the tithe or the tide, T-H and D are philologically switchable. The great tithe, the great tide. This is an ancient ecclesiastical system. I mean, even <laughs> the rulership of the polis was called the Ecclesiastes in Greek before there was ever such a thing as Christianity. And what I what I think has gone on, and you can find out a lot of great stuff from in Dylan's Spirit World books, the more recent ones in particular, about you know this monastic system, this mafia system, if you want to call it something maybe a little more accurate in modern terms, that there was some kind of a corporate setup already existing 
in many, many areas of the world, call, call them colonies, if you will, of whatever this maritime seafaring priest merchant class was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and the, these Phoenicians, for lack of a better term, are interesting because they they didn't circumcise themselves, which was a part of what they made the other priesthood. But like, I wouldn't say they made them do it, but like the priesthoods were doing that. You know, the the male priests were to access the <laughs> the magic. They, you know, were doing everything they could to be not men anymore, to be more like women. And, but the Phoenicians did not circumcise themselves. So it's almost like they've always, whoever they are, you know, and maybe in their later guys as Venetians in Italy again, or we could call them ancient Etruscans. I, I think Dylan's onto something with Italy being the epicenter of the world empire, even before what we call Rome. And that, you know, the Holy Roman empire or church took over a pre-existing ecclesiastical monastic system. The idea of tithes or a 10th pay, you know, your district pays their 10th to you. And then you pay the 10th to the next guy up the chain. And then he pays the 10th all the way up the chain. You know, it's just a system like of 10ths of it. And then a 10th and then a 10th all the way down. Right. And that was all there and all set up. You know, we mentioned the goddesses of the the Celts and then the, the Christians coming in and being like, actually, this is the goddess. It's mother Mary, but they already had a story of a crucified savior and the, you know, going to return and save the world type thing before they had Jesus. I mean, the Gauls had a guy named Jesus. <laughs> There's so much there, but you know, I want to get lost in the weeds on it. I think what's important maybe though, to go back to Baphomet, which I think is worth it. Is real, that real uh chance can I throw down on the please. Italy of yeah. the center? I want to uh, bring forward the 1984 quote that I'm going to fuck up, but it basically says something like uh, fascism is a boot stomping on the face of humanity forever. And that boot is Italy. That boot is Italy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's telling you. Uh, and then, and then, uh, one more I mean, thought. where does the word fascism even comes from Italy, right? It's a World War II Mussolini phrase. Yes. It was yes. conned, I mean, coined, caned. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Crooked. And, and then one more thing uh, that is kind of fascinating to think about alchemically, to, coming from the Jungian alchemical uh, angle here, is uh, all of what we're talking about, all this oppressive, oppressive regimes, these cons, conning us with coins, uh, it generates a vitriol. It generates a, a seething, boiling drive to excel, to uh, to overcome constantly. And that becomes a fuel, you know. And so a lot of what I'm thinking about is, you know, sublimating that uh, that repressiveness and giving us uh, something to fight about, giving us a determinative spirit. Um, and I'm even it came up in the chat earlier. Uh, Marty mentioned the 88 of Mercury, uh, eight, eight, August 8th is the, uh, the lion's gate. And I've been thinking about how eight is an H. So if you put an H next to an H, you get hate and hate is technically vitriol. And so there's something really fascinating about owning your vitriol, taking command of it and sublimating it and using it as fuel, uh, to burn your own internal alchemical fire. It's something to, you know, uh, convert your enemy into your ally is uh, the way I like to phrase that. Mitriol being that stone within, right? Basically. 
inside your earth. That's right. You're the terrain. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Sorry, there's... didn't mean to derail your chance. Fire away. Oh, I just want to talk about Baphomet. So, yeah, man, there's a lot to say about this, but we're talking again about the hermaphroditic, androgynous, the the demon lord. <laughs> I mean, we have this idea of a demon being an infernal spirit, but again, demonolatry or demonia of the ancients was about the souls of the dead. And the more powerful the hero was, the more prominent their soul was in some as sense that you could contact it or it could help you with things. These are chthonic spirits. The souls are under the earth or that's what makes them infernal or that's even what the definition of chthonic is. So what else is under the earth? The metals are under the earth. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about these jinn or the spirits of the dead or the whites that are in the earth or under the ground, these are basically the sons of Cain, the sons of Vulcan. And the you know, the top of that, they, their big daddy mama would be represented by the Baphomet or any of the other androgyn, androgynous beings you've got going on. Um, we got to talk about the goat yeah. stuff, but in like the Etruscan, which is ancient Italy and on into the Roman, even they were putting Janus on their coins all the time. And Janus is this two or sometimes three faced being just like Brahma, Shiva, Vishnu. Mm -hmm. And uh, even in, you know, Mesoamerica, ancient Mexico, they've got the multi-faced gods. This is part of the universal system. This is a more ancient vestige of it. I think before maybe some of the idolatry got, more significant and the three faces, I think we're really looking at the three sons of the equinox and the, uh, and solstices that as Jason quit talked, taught us about last Sunday on Interverse, <laughs> there are the three sons of God or the three sons of Noah or the three sons of Adam or the three sons of Menu, uh, whoever it happens to be, they are, Symbolically, the three different suns that you get in the sky at those crucial points of the year. Mm. The reason there'd be three is that at the equinox, it's the same deal. You know, it's 50-50. I think the moon is also in the in a microcosm, a like the exact same cycle. The yep. way that we see half light, half day at the equinoxes, you know, long longest day at the summer solstice, longest night at the winter solstice. That's equivalent to the half moons and then the full moon and then the new moon, right? So like on a quicker turnaround, the moon's doing that. So also I think there's, it's worth pointing out that you'll see the crescent moon symbol with these androgen beings. Sometimes they're standing on it. Yes. They're standing on it because that symbol is the arc, the arc of (laughs) the arc and the moon and the moon even being in some occult references, like a vault for these spirits of the dead or jinn or demonia the man on the moon, but uh, the Templars were said to worship John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist is definitely going to relate us to this idea of, uh, you know, the winter sun, but we're talking about Janus, the gates of the year, John, Janus, Janus. It's basically the same name and uh, Baphomet. Some like literally some, some, 
descriptions of it. You know, we have the modern Alphias Levi. I say modern, it's 1800s. It's pretty modern. We have that version of it. But the ancient descriptions of it would often say that the head of Baphomet had two or three faces. Mm -hmm. Ancient as in like the writings from back in the time, Templar times and aroundabouts. Um, And we need to talk about how, you know, they they were accused of worshiping a head. Well, it, we, again, this is too big to unpack, but like wisdom and head and even metis, which is Greek for wisdom or meat, you know, all these words for wisdom also mean head, which is kind of polar in an interesting way. Um, and that's worth talking about. But the head was said, <laughs> the head of Baphomet or the head of John Janus was, would cause the land to germinate. So, I mean, just that very notion alone that this is causing the land to germinate and even all their weird freaky sex magic rituals that the Templars may have been doing or were accused of doing was re- was helping the land germinate. There's your Eros. I mean, just think about germ and yeah. herm. You know, it's the same word. I'll stop. I, I could, I'm just reading from my notes. <laughs> <laughs> um there's yeah dude that's there's a lot to chew on there uh wanted to go back to the baphomet the triple headed situation in the john the baptist thing funny enough in the templar cipher there is no j and j and i are the same that's why like a lot of times you'll see like the i is the j on dates right or like the one is the the i or the j so that's kind of funny because it's like okay you know why would their their god or, you know, this guy that they're worshiping be named John having no J in their cipher or is the J like the entire gate to the cipher? Like that's kind of crazy. And this triple head situation and some of the um, more uh, recent research I've been getting into is the triple moon goddess that is revered in many moon mysteries. Um, so there's, there's that death life uh, cycle rebirth, but I think they, the sun and the moon imitate each other. Obviously you're talking about like the micro and the macrocosm, um, and how important they are to each other. And as their cycles interchange, they create massive amounts of energy flux when they come together and those cycles meet up, right? Like it's, it's huge. Oh yeah. Those equinox points. We're about to feel it. I feel it coming on. That's also my solar return. Ooh. Uh, and so, but another thing with the head, right? You, this goes deep, man, like talking about the importance of the skull, uh, to many, many, many different esoteric, uh, societies that there is something about one eating the brains of somebody and, and gaining all of their wisdom from, from their, from their body. There's ancient Hawaiians believe that as well. A, a lot of cultures believe that, but there's something special about this part. No way to really check that without eating a brain. So I guess we'll never know. Hopefully. You know what I mean? Like if you eat cow brains, you're going to be smart as a cow. I don't know. Uh, but we're, we are the cow and, and some of folk and knowledge work and some. Ancient uh, Owen Benjamin stuff. has a story about catching a rabbit or, or having a, a rabbit that he, slaughtered and ate its heart immediately while at raw. And he said he was like having, he was jumpy and he was having dreams about going into the rabbit holes and going under his own chicken coop. Like he took on qualities of the rabbit for a while and it freaked him the hell out. And he talks about that a lot. The most healthy parts of the, of the, of the meat to eat is not the muscle. It's the, it's the organs, you know, they're full of, 
like, you know, people eat chicken livers all the time. People eat kidney, like they're full of very, uh, necessary minerals and massive amounts of protein. And that's probably why that got alluded to, well, if you eat human organs, it's probably going to have as much minerals or, you know, qualities as possible. But there, but when you look at Paracelsian med- medical cannibalism, if you want to call it that, you know, the many uses for the body parts and the medical history of Paracelsian and also ancient Chinese medicine, there's use for these body parts in all of these things. And um, one of the most revered parts a lot of times is the head. Um, there's something very important about that. There's this type of moss that grows on the skull. It's called skull moss. Uh, it's in Usnia too, which is really interesting because Usnia specifically grows on oak trees a lot of times. Um, so there's something to that. And when the blood, uh, or, or they, they would say that, uh, skull moss would grow on the head when someone was hung because there was something specific about the way that the body had to go and be passed in order to create that specific bacterial growth on the skull. I don't know, but there's a lot to chew on there. I just wanted to throw my thoughts out on the triple moon, the head worship and, and the blood and the minerals and all the things. So real quick, what I, what I have come to think is maybe esoterically encoded in all this head equals wisdom symbolism is that we are in the head of God right now, that all of this is the divine imagination. That's the real prima materia. That's the real philosopher's stone. And if you have, if you have connection to that mentally through knowing that, then you have the ability to cause change in this divine imagination that is more aligned with your own personal will, but in a sense, you're actually aligning your will with the will of the divine imagination for that to work. So the boundary kind of collapses between (laughs) who's creating what, and it's just more of like a flow state thing. But I do think maybe esoterically the wisdom that's being encoded is that this is literally we're in the head right now, metaphorically speaking, I guess not literally, but Maybe literally, maybe we are in a skull. You know, we don't know what this realm is. The dome could actually be the top of a skull of a, a larger being. We really don't know. Right, right, right. Um, regarding the head real quick, just in case it wasn't clear for people, uh, one of the things that Tracy was speculating is whether or not the uh, Templars were literally worshiping the head of uh, John the Baptist and he was decapitated, right? So they would have theoretically, I guess, access to just the head um, because of that and that the head was kind of passed around and ended up in their hands in some way or another, which I think is interesting. And so she's saying that Baphomet might be the title given to the divinatory head that this cult was using for inspiration and magical purposes and ritual workings and whatever. And then kind of related to that too, uh, the skull and crossbones, it's been said that the skull is actually the skull of Geronimo. So there's a few famous photos back in the day of the skull and crossbones crew uh, in that era. And they're right there with the literal crossbones and then a skull. And so they say that uh, the skull was actually Geronimo's skull. And so having a Tracy uh, says that there's some that think that all the skulls that the skull and bones have collected are because they're eating brains. (laughs) Also I'll add too that she claims the skull and crossbones to be a symbol for the prima materia. Ah, right, right. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So anyways, just wanted to throw that out there, but the whole entire thing about living within a skull, the dome and all that kind of stuff. uh, I, I just like all the things that that conjures up for me in my mind. I think that's really interesting. 
Yeah, because your crown chakra would be if yeah. this realm was a skull, <laughs> the crown chakra would be the pole star, interestingly enough. Yeah. And yeah. you know, another weird thing is when I tune folks, I check for where the top of the the donut shaped toroidal field is and the and the bottom below their feet. And just in the sense of like pole star procession. <laughs> the hole of the donut above people's crown, the top of the toroidal field is often off center. It, and I have to like click and drag it back to where it should be. Uh, most people, for most people also the below the feet one. Yeah. That's, in- that's, that's interesting. The, you know, the analema is actually often off center, just a little on the crown. It's not actually uh, perfectly centered. The solstice is actually just ever so off kilter. So that's interesting that that's turning up in people's chakra. And uh, before I forget, and I don't have my dry erase board, but I always got to mention the fasty calendar. The way that they used to split up the year was C is the third letter, suns. So there are also, there's a trinity in the old uh, uh, division of the year uh, with a uh, summer spring, spring and winter and i would say that this was before the fall get it before the fall and so uh and another thing you can also you uh dylan mentioned this the hill of golgotha you divide this with three crosses you divide the hill this is a hilltop you Mm. put three different crosses and you got your 12 stations of the year so there's another holy trinity there i just thought i would throw all that in the mix nice and then I think Tracy talks about briefly about the Templars learning a technique for psychological warfare where they would where they would psych somebody out and convince them that they were actually looking at a talking head. And, <laughs> and it, uh, basically it would involve like burying somebody up to their neck and having a plate, a certain plate that made it look like their head was on the bowl. And then asking questions in the uh, this talking head, giving answers that were uh, psychologically jarring with uh, how accurate they were. And then later on, they would be shown the lower half of the body. And so the illusion was complete that they actually thought that there's the body, that was the head, and the head was talking. You know what I mean? So there was like a just complete... Like the Wizard of Oz. Just like the Wizard of Oz, a complete illusion at play. I can see that. That's interesting. For sure. Wow. Yeah, I I read that. I think it is in this book. Now now that you mention it, I think it is. And uh she I don't think she goes into it like supremely heavily, but I do think I remember it's what was it that they it's it's so yeah, that's some of the the deep esoteric secrets, right? Like these these things that you'll only know about uh if you go and literally try to do some of the inner workings is how to truly psychologically manipulate somebody. Uh I mean you have to take time and effort and and just a and real interesting will of power to want to go down that path. And I think that's what, you know, taking the step to to, you know, to this next level of brotherhood, you know, was for these guys was to something deeper spiritually. I mean, like, obviously, back in the back in the day, I think we were a lot more spiritually spiritual in general, if it wasn't altogether the same spirituality, it was like people just had more 
passion, but kind of what the thing is, you know, that she gets into with this. And I think she was alluding to, she didn't really, so you can't go to the, the last page of the book and she summarized her exact thoughts in one, you know, one paragraph or anything, which would be cool, by the way. Um, I looked, I tried. Uh, so is that, that, you know, in, in American gods, Neil Gaiman kind of covers this as well is that, our spirituality is not gone. Our passion is not lost. We are loving, beautiful, strong, very empathic creatures. And we have been lost upon the trail of this psychological warfare that we've been dealing with and we've been handed, we've been dealt these cards and that these old gods that had, they were just, you know, it's, they haven't really changed to become the new gods and the new gods is money. And that time is money. And then we are in a sense, you know, kind of worshiping this, the Saturnian concept. And towards the end of the book, she gets into some of uh, Vedic, some Vedic astrology and goes into the Kali Yuga and everything. And in that sense, in a lot of, a lot of circles, you know, we might be entering in, in Saturn's rule coming soon. Um, you know, like that we are on the last leg of the cow and that, that fourth turning into this, uh, this end you know, endemic that will be the Saturnian rule. She kind of alludes to that in the latter part of the book. Do you guys remember that? Yeah, but you know, people have been saying that since Virgil. <laughs> Vir- Virgil said that the birth of, or the the church attributed some of Virgil's lines to mean that Christ represented the end of the Iron Age and the beginning of the go, go, the next age, which would be the Golden One. Or, I mean, they tell us at the end of Avengers Endgame when Iron Man defeats Thanos and though everybody, you know, the old world is destroyed and it's brought back, but it's brought back and everyone that was gone is now popped back into existence. Just as the, you know, mythos goes that at the destruction of everything and the renovation of everything, all will be returned to the way it was in the original state. And what is his last words <laughs> as he's this sacrificial, sacrificial mercurial character says, I am Iron Man. And then he dies, the Iron Age dies, and now we're into the Golden Age. I think that this is utopian, you know, mm-hmm. just just hang on, you know, it's fine. It's okay, okay. that you're slaves to this uh, system now. <laughs> just hang on, it's going to get better. You're going to get your gold back. You know, that's sort of like constantly being seated in our minds. I don't think we can depend on that or any of the, I don't think that it's worth putting any stock into any idea of great cycles or ages because nobody agrees, you know, who's your source? It's all, the priests are always wrong about that stuff in terms of what the cycles are in the Uh first place. Now I know. I got something on that. I am. I'm dying to say it. I'm dying to say it. So uh, in Tracy's book, she mentions towards the end, it's not the very end. It's like in that uh, maybe the second to last chapter, she mentions that Francis Bacon had a prophecy that someday there would be an economy, a new economy that would involve uh, wise philosophers exchanging ideas and that their ideas would become the, uh, the flow and the currency of a new time. And look at what we're doing right here and right now. Look at us. Yeah. Look at us exchanging ideas and getting and thriving off of the sharing of concepts. And, uh, you know, me getting a hard on over Mario's library. You know what I mean? Like I get more out of that than any work that I've, that I do. Uh, 
uh, but what is trippy now that's a beautiful philosophy and it's really fascinating because we are in a new we can't deny we are in a whole new new paradigm we are in a whole new paradigm and we're when we're thriving and reveling in it but something that's kind of trippy is that prophecy was also seeded in the celestine prophecies and if anybody was reading in between the lines and the Celestine prophecies, they were talking about eventually it would be an exchange of energies and ideas and intellectual wisdom would become the new currency. And that's fascinating and beautiful and very promising because we are living in it. Uh, but then there's a weird other parallel that I just have to mention because, I, because it's in my mind. I can't not say it. But I think the Mormons had something similar in, their, in the Mormon prophecy. Uh, so in that aspect, at least there's a good budget behind it, <laughs> but yeah, I would, ju- I just wanted to throw that all out there. Cause we are in like a whole new day and age and yeah. hopefully, hopefully, uh, we can keep this good thing going and we Francis, don't have to pay the Mormons for it. <laughs> Francis Bacon's work dude is like, I've been tripping on him for the past year and a half. <clears throat> like really like they because when I found out like the true, you know, when I started digging into the, the true esoteric roots of this country and, and reality or what have you, started looking at like, well, who were the like major players of this, you know? And <clears throat> Francis Bacon, his, the New Atlantis, which was an unfinished work by, by him was going to be a magnum opus, right? In a sense, like it was going to be a magnum opus. It was and is like the treasure map and the founding and the idea of everything that America is uh, alchemically written because he obviously, you know, having part in the Shakespearean situation is a very good cryptic writer. And so his cryptic writings on the new founding of this new Atlantis that Tracy talks about in here, that is an incredible read that everybody can give PDF version of is in the, it's, it was their plan. They, they, this was the alchemical working. And in some of these slides that I have, here uh if you want to pull these up real quick if you don't mind my dude uh it it kind of like is weird when you start to look at some of these old alchemical um processes and the colors and the examinations of the colors and how important these different things are like Fulconelli describes to you how important colors are through the alchemical processes and how they change and that's when you know you've gotten to that next stage is when the color has been fully transmuted from one to another and you change the colors. You are playing the God within the kiln. And, and I think, you know, talking about cycles, like we were talking about earlier, you know, if you speak about it alchemically and it's not cyclic workings of uh, a planetary rotation or movement, stars, astrology, whatever, then it could be taken alchemically and put into a sense of like the master alchemist at play and their workings to create a philosopher's stone. If we are in fact the mercurial stuff and the assistance, the substance within the master still, the major still, the real prima materia of earth itself. Um, and so, but America and new Atlantis, you go back yeah, the uh, snake lady. Yes. And this is, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I, Gabriel, I think I told you about this, but Herodotus claims the Scythians or Scythians, as some people call them, mm. who, by the way, they were scalping fools. S- sickles. <laughs> That's a very specific practice that connects them to possibly, you know, North American tribes that would do right. that. 
Oh, they were right. scalping fools, but the the origin of the Scythian tribe, according to Herodotus, is that Hercules found a snake lady in a cave and they got it on and he had three sons with her and one of them became the father of the Scythians. And Herodotus calls the snake lady. And when I say snake lady, I mean female upper half, snake lower half. How he shagged that, I don't know, but (laughs) Herodotus calls her an echidna. Echidna. That is so crazy. I haven't even had time to. But that's basically, that's your Noah, three sons, Adam, three sons. Heracles has three sons this way. Yes. And also, um, Auriga, the charioteer, who is Hephaestus, the volcano god, was cast down to Sicily, to the island of where Edna is, where the where the mother of all monsters resides. He has three kids. Chance, he's got he's got Capia on his shoulder, and he's got two little baby goats on the behind him. Hmm. And oh, uh, shit, baby goats! And he's wearing a Phrygian cap. Uh, uh, and I think that that is uh, hailing to. Uh, Heredit, I'm sorry, uh, inheritance rights that the eldest kid gets, uh, gets a double share of the, of the inheritance. Uh, it's, it's all in there, man. It's so profound. So another snakes for legs. Here's the Templar coin of Abraxas. Let me yes. make sure this is up. Templars apparently made coins that look like this. There are still like, why isn't it letting me? Yeah. Okay. And and That's here's right. the deal with Abraxas too is completely hermaphroditic. Everybody knows, you know, just know that that it's it is the both even though it seemingly has a more of a masculine vibe going on. Abraxas in general, like the name alone. Ex- yeah, yeah, exactly. There's the seven stars. Um I and you see the shield but it also kind of has a, has a crescent moon feel to it. It's like mm-hmm. the sun and the moon together. Uh snakes for legs. The two serpents, Lilith and Samael. Mm-hmm. I think Abraxas you could etymologically break into Ab or Ab, which is father. And then the Rax, R-A-X, is also Rack or Reek or Reach or Rich. Means strong etymologically. And then the I-S is like Isay, the old name, the Arabic name for Jesus or Isis you know, again, the mother is the son. So it's like the strong father mother <laughs> is one way of naming this, which is a fit to a lot of the other versions of, uh, you know, the, whoever the deity happens to mm-hmm. be symbolized as at that time, again, two snakes or anytime you see the, the, the male and female animal pair that, you know, Zeus and Io the, as bulls, for example, that's like symbolic of how the the demon lord, mother and father have taken every form because every form is actually part of their form. Mm. Uh, and even the word idea, the Greek word idea or idea is the form or pattern. You know, the the everything in the form is idea in, in etymologically speaking. So it's Yo. interesting. Uh, Manly P. Hall, he breaks down Abraxas and he says the axis at the end is literally axis as in the world. Very axis, true. Yeah, there's a I lot of encodings in there. Totally. And Abraxas 
generally is seen riding a chariot. Obviously, it's just a little coin, so they didn't put all the details in there. But a lot of the time, he is riding a chariot. So I think of the chariot wheel, the spinning of the mm. cosmos, etc., the seven stars on the coin, seven stars of Ursa Major, um, things like that. So that that's how he breaks it down. Just another, yeah, another take. And I got to point out that Carl Young had a... <laughs> Carl Young was a big fan of Abraxas, wrote about him quite a bit. And uh, Abraxas, a ring, right? Na- Abraxas ring or Demiurge ring or something. Yeah, he's got yeah, a- the Templars have Abraxas rings. That's still a popular thing for modern yeah. secret societies who claim descent from the Templars. Yes, everybody should look into that ring because on the front it's got the Agatho Daemon, and on the back there's something else. I'll let that. I'll just let that float for everybody else to go down the rabbit hole on their own. It's a fun adventure. Another way to consider that is how the Agatha Daemon or the good Daemon. The, the father spirit uh, mm-hmm. takes on the form of all these different animals because <laughs> it's like the sun taking on different characters as it goes through the year. That's one version of the symbolism. Yeah. And I think there it's was like a, an actor who plays different characters. There, there was a scholar who interpreted it and it's, it's controversial, but it, uh, some believed that the Agatho Damon was symbolic of a guardian of the household. So it also has, uh, I, I see it having s- some relation to uh, traveling, astral travel, projection, imagine, whatever, dreaming, uh, he, uh, even uh, he's, uh, uh, he, fever dreams, having fever dreams, going on a vision quest, and something has to take care of the household while you're gone. Uh, so that's kind of a pattern in Carl Jung's work as well. That there's always something taking care of the home while you're off having your shamanic journey. Wow. That's re- <laughs> That's true though, huh? Yo, so what I just want to ask you guys real quick because I know uh I know Benjamin Balderson's response to this. I've asked him this in person before, but what's you guys' opinion on uh Jungian alchemy? It's I kind know of Baldi, off topic. Balderson loves a Jungian alchemy. That- <laughs> <laughs> <I know. laughs> I love his writing though, you know. Yeah, it's man. good, but it's good to talk about. But I wanna, I wanna get it. I wanna hit the money. Okay, yes. <laughs> real, okay, wanna, real quick, while these slides are up, back to the can money I just topic. do this one weave before? Because we were talking about New yeah, Atlantis, no and then okay. So just this young slide is too, too much of a can of Abraxas to open. It's ridiculous. It, you know, it's that's a whole other show, and we should do that. Uh, <laughs> oh, but this sure. one right here, I was looking at this. I was looking at this alchemical picture here on the left, right? It's an alchem- um, uh, a marriage, right? Uh, a chemical marriage and wh- a chemical wedding. And I was like, oh, that looks an awful lot like a split tail snake goddess like Melusine or, you know, like the, the mermaids and the Scythians and the echidna and all those things. So uh, something else that sprung to me at that time was that the importance of the the witch in the water and the women in the water and lakes and those, this thing called the little red man that we kind of touched on earlier um, that was a very big part of, or not a big part, but it's in the, it's in the book. And talking about how homunculuses are basically created. And I started thinking, I was like, well, didn't they call, here's another version of it, the swamp man and the angel. Um, didn't they call the reddening? 
Yes. And the reddening, didn't they call the, uh, the native Americans and the indigenous people, the red skins, right? Red skin people, but they're not, it doesn't make any sense. They're more um, copper skinned as yeah. in, you know, bronze age. <laughs> shades, shade, yeah, shades, but actually shades there's of a melanin lot, there's all a, there's around. There's a weave to get into someday that we've talked about before, how a, the bad, the bad man is always the red guy. Mm-hmm. Like or the Gauls is a French word, ghouls, red, and, you know, the reds as in the Russians and the commies and the Indians, and it goes on. That's actually a huge common theme, that the red guy is the bad guy. Yes, and exactly. And that's kind of like this, you know, what they did to the natives, right? You know, by calling them that and coming and taking away, you know, all the whole story, right? But it's funny when you think about how alchemical that these people were and how into this this major philosopher's stone of turning this raw land into a golden palace, the the golden phallus to be stricken of the fertility of the new America, the new Atlantis, Atlantis in America, right? The same thing, or maybe taking back its original reigns. Um, and maybe that is where the central vitriol lives and the many caverns that are underneath our feet, especially in Kentucky. But America is a rather cavernous place, especially a very volcanic place. It has all of the things. So it makes sense. It would be, um, you know, the, the opolis that it is. But I, and I, it kind of dung on me. It dunged on me. Wow. Like a dung, it crapped on me. It shit on my head. When I read this, I was like, I was like, oh my gosh. Like I was like the red man. I was like, these, they're considering like Amer- us, the homunculus that they've created, like the people of true America is the homunculus of the system of the alchemical workings of the American system. And we've been, we've been shit out to literally create more gold. Uh, from something out of nothing, which is what the alchemy of money is, especially in today's modern new age society is turning absolutely nothing into money, turning that lead into gold, turning that paperweight into a heavy financial monetary gain. And, uh, and so I, so I think they were calling, uh, that's a little bit of a different side weave than the actual native indigenous, uh, you know, fuckery that was going on these they, they and their continuous uh downplay on that but i think them coming over here and dominating them and littling them as a people was their version of creating this homunculus of a society something they could piggyback on for the future to come when they write the false history of america and the false upbringing of 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 this country um, i think so, they were here yeah. i think the Roman Empire in whatever form, this conquistadors and all that. I am suspecting, starting to suspect they they were here way longer than Columbus sailed the ocean blue. I'm I'm pretty sure the Columbus story is just pure astrotheology. It maybe never even happened. CC baby is 33. It's a it's a hundred percent made up story. There's been many different societies here. Uh, ancient Chinese were have been here for thousands of years. In California, I've, I've, I've done massive amounts of research on the Chinese in California, uh, and the land bridges that connected those bodies of land together. And it's very true. The land uh, bridge is interesting because the Chinese, in terms of records we have, did not have seafaring capacity. So they would have needed that. Yeah. Uh, but then again, they also created the compass. They're, they're, they're known for creating gunpowder, paper bills, and the compass. Uh, I look to the East for a lot of stuff. 
Um, but also at the same time, yeah, the land bridge thing, you can basically go up to Russia and see Alaska from there. Right. I mean, it's a rather vicious hike, but you can do it. Um, and then anyways, I digress on all of that. We should definitely go into the, the more of the money stuff, but we, I agree. I mean, that's all, that's all fascinating and worth exploring. I want to get into, I'm going to just kick take us through the information that I really want to make sure gets expressed. And then we can talk about that more freely. Once I kind of get that out there, absolutely the the main big idea. (laughs) So it's going to require a little bit, but the first thing is we're going to jump forward in time, even though there's plenty more to say about goats and kissing goat buttholes and Templars (laughs) and what happened with (laughs) that whole caper. But Jumping forward to 1933, the executive order, Order 66, uh, four days after April Fool's Day, the beginning of the old year, we have the issuance of this decree in the United States, executive order, all gold coin, gold bullion, gold certificates has to be given to a Federal Reserve Bank branch or agency. The Federal Reserve was created. The gold standard was abolished. This is a big deal. In Trace's book, she's going to lay out the history of that and what was going on, like the Bretton Woods agreement that came later and how the dollar became the world reserve currency. She's going to lay that out in great detail. But what is important, I think, to understand about the whole process of our modern age is that the gold standard has been replaced with a time standard. And, you know, this is, <laughs> this has caused so many problems and people like energetically, you know, I run into constantly when I'm doing tunings, how people have, they really have, have need a need to detach their self-worth from time. <laughs> <laughs> That's the simplest way I can put it, that their self-worth has been attached to this idea of time, time is money type of deal. And so in this fractional reserve system that was created with fiat currency off the gold standard, the uh, economist James Maynard Keynes actually put forward in writing a plan of how this could work out in the sense that because Fractional reserve lending means that money is created out of nothing, ex nihilo. Like when you get a loan, you get a credit card, whatever the version of the the lent money is, that money is created on paper and never even necessarily printed as physical cash. And so every time that there is a new debt added to the system, I mean, every dollar bill is actually a debt note. It's not actual money. It's not a, you can't trade it for gold. But every time a new money is added to the system through a loaning practice, uh, you know, inflation would theoretically rise. So the Keynes plan was to create infinite spending, basically, so that you would keep up with the inflation of more money going in the system by programs from the government spending more and more money, basically. And this infinite spending uh, (laughs) essentially means that capitalism became a very different thing than, you know, a free market with uh, a stable currency and a stable economy. And now the heads and the capital of the heads of future people back to the head thing have been pledged to hedge the debts of this system. So when 
1933 thing comes along and the New Deal also shows up with this version of socialism, that socialism wasn't benevolence. It was a way and an attempt to engineer an outspending of the inflation after the removal of gold and all the constant money being added to the supply willy nilly. And there's so much more about this in terms of like how the International Monetary Fund was created and the World Bank was created. And as a way to encourage people to get on the dollar standard, you know, other nations were able to trade other nations, central banks, I should say, were able to trade their dollars for gold at $35 an ounce, which is something that had been made illegal for U.S. citizens to do. You can't even trade your money for gold that way. I mean, maybe you could buy gold later on, but there was <laughs> for a while you weren't even allowed to have gold. So <sighs> this is eventually getting us to a 40 hour work week, but I want to read from, I know I'm, I'm going to have to keep going for a little while to get this big idea out and then we'll talk around it. But I really want to make sure this is included in the show and we're a little long in the tooth. So uh, I'm going to quote from the, the Twyman book here. She says, because of this artificial relationship that has been forged between time and money and because of the magic of fractional reserve lending, money can now be expanded or contracted with time. By that, I mean... The total value or I'm sorry, the total amount of money in circulation varies according to its velocity, how quickly it changes hands. The faster money is traded around, the more velocity it has, thus the more volume. But conversely, the more money is created by the banks, the more goods and services must be created to absorb it, to make it real. And the quicker these goods and services must be traded. Otherwise, there's more money in circulation than there is stuff to absorb it and inflation results. What this has created is an unhealthy artificial relationship between time and money that affects our lives in a multitude of ways, which we don't even fully perceive. When the economy tanks, it is described as slowing down. A recession isn't merely a lack of money in existence, but a lack of velocity. The approach that the U.S. government has taken over the last few decades to inflate the money supply while decreasing domestic production and employment leads to a distortion of time perception by the public. As the value of money goes down, you have to earn more of it in order to get by. But because the minimum wage keep the amount that you can earn uh, <laughs> mostly fixed relative to time, you have to spend more time earning it. But of course, you have a fixed amount of time available in a day. So as the economy gets worse, time seems to go faster and your youth drains away from you quicker. This is twer the, the action that is really regulating the velocity of the time money continuum is this nebulous concept. So often blindly idealized, which is work. So... <sighs> That is so important. It's that is huge. Crazy. Yeah. And exactly. And then when cooties hit, the velocity mm -hmm. goes down right. into recession. Exactly. So, okay. I'm going to keep, I, I'm going to keep going a little bit more. This is a, for, a little further in the book. It says, it is my belief that the modern economy has been set up so as to literally force the individuals involved to engage in some form of work, no matter how practically useless it may be in order to complete the alchemical transformation of turning paper into gold. 
the system is set up to try to get individuals to unwittingly allow themselves to be absorbed in the process, just as youth, mercury, is absorbed in the alchemical transformation. And so just like with other, this is me adding in a little bit, just like with other magical practices, there's all this aspect of the ritual, the working, as they call it, that you do to help you believe that it's real and it's actually going to do something to change reality, that your your ceremony is effective, that she's saying that work in most people's experience of it, you know, think about all the useless jobs out there that actually do nothing to help the world. I'm not talking about work like going and planting food in the ground and getting real return on your investment of time or work like body work on somebody, something that actually helps them. I'm talking about making widgets and doodads and ad advertisements mm -hmm. and all kinds of stuff that is has no actual tangible mm -hmm. reality, right? Yet people have to work this 40 hour or more work week because that's part of this system of turning the paper into gold and actually getting our time to convert to gold for people at the top of the chain. So continuing on, the fact is that money can be and is created out of nothing. But in order for us to have faith that it actually exists, we need to go through some sort of travail in order to achieve it. Human beings instinctively don't believe that something can be created out of nothing. They need to go through the process of work in order to satisfy the logical part of their mind to make them believe that creation is taking place. So the economic system is made, is set up to make that happen. The bank may create money from thin air, but you're going to have to either pay it back with interest if you borrow it or earn it through working for someone who has borrowed it from the bank and is obligated to pay it back with interest. In this system, individuals don't get anything for free and the human perception of the law of conservation as they believe it applies to money is preserved. So I think that's the big, big idea that we really should understand about the modern economy is that uh, it's literally set up to no longer be, you know, it's your, your, your time is your spiritual currency. It's your attention. Mm -hmm. It's the only thing that you get here that actually constitutes your life or your power or your real self. It's like what you do <laughs> with your time is everything. So to get such a big chunk of people's time devoted to something they don't care about, they don't like, you know, but because they did all that working, they believe, well, oh, these dollar bills have real value. I exchanged my life force for it. But yet it is nothing. It's nothing in nature. Gold and silver, they are something. Gold will be gold. Leave it on the bottom of the ocean. Come back a thousand years later. It's going to be the exact same gold, right? right. It doesn't decay. So uh, <laughs> that's what I really want to you know, yeah, talk about for a while is this so, transmission. Uh, I'm what, i got to point out that so we've detached from the land, from the earth, from the elements under our feet. And now it's all this crazy ethereal Saturnian time aspect that we're serving. And there's no longer this grounded element to it. And I've been, you know, a lot of my research is focusing on the uh, significance of Vulcan. You know, ever since I read mono, uh, Moses and monotheism, learning about how, uh, you know, Yahweh was a Vul was in some lights and not a broad, I'm not broad brushing, but in certain uh, context, Yahweh was considered a volcano god, 
Mm-hmm. And the volcano is the giver. It gives all the mm-hmm. gifts. It gives all the precious alloys. It's where the diamonds are found. It's where it's where the smelting is done. So you can even uh, determine the value of the metal, uh, you know, where you can, you know, uh, mix and match. Uh, mm-hmm. So you can have more or less pure alloys. And it's also how you counterfeit uh, metals. So uh, real quick uh, weave here. The name Theogenes has been on my radar. Theogenes of Megara is a historical Greek persona. He was cast down to Sicily. He was cast out. Uh, he had to go to Sicily as an exile and work his way back into the good graces of the court. Had to bribe his way in. Uh, and his story is one-to-one correspondent with Hephaestus' myth. So I see uh, Theogenes as an eu hymnarized derivative of Hephaestus the volcano god. Uh, and what is fascinating is I found another Theogenes in history uh, whose name is Theogenes, spelled differently, T-H-E-A-G-E-N-E-S of Thesos. And his story is not exactly the same, but it's very similar. He was an excellent uh, athlete. They built a, uh, a statue of him and, uh, and somebody came along and they started talking shit to the statue and the statue fell down and squashed the person. And they took it as a bad omen. So they took the statue out and they threw it in the, in the river and said, well, that was bad. We don't want this bad omen hanging around. It's got blood on the statue, which corresponds to blood on the money with uh, Judas Iscariot. So they throw the statue out in the water and then all of a sudden the crops don't grow anymore. And they're like, oh, fuck, we got to get that statue back. So they go and they harvest the Theogenes statue out of the water and then the crops come back. Well, what's fascinating about that is that is also the story of Talos, which is where the name Dollars comes from. The myth is that there was a big giant robot that would throw rocks at invading forces, and uh, they pulled out his Achilles heel. They drained out the eye core, the blood that made the robot work, and he collapsed into the water. And then they had to go in and retrieve the metals that he was made out of, and those were the first talismans that became Talos Moni. Talus money, the talismans of Mm -hmm. Talos. So there's something really fascinating to me about Theogenes, the volcano god, Hephaestus, Vulcan, and the origin of money. And what is really crazy is we're not worshiping the volcano god anymore. We're detached from those those elements, those uh, rare earth elements. And we're just worshiping Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Well, back to the minstrel blood or starfire coagulating as a primary material to turn into any other thing. Uh, there's lots of goddesses whose menstrual blood was thought to in some way be responsible for the creation of mankind. Like uh, the example that comes to mind is Nin Hersag in the Sumerian mythology that her blood of life mixed with clay to create humans. And even Adama, the word that becomes Adam, meaning red earth or red clay. Well, I, you know, till now I've wondered where I've assumed red clay is just like, you know, here in Missouri, we actually have clay that's red under the ground all over the place. But that's just here. I don't know if that's everywhere else. Maybe the red clay is the mixture of blood with the earth. And, you know, back to the sacrificial rites that relate to all that in the scapegoat. That's interesting. The, uh, the, the volcano about the time yeah. gabriel the same time that they instituted the new deal shit daylight savings time was no way yeah interesting same, same roosevelt administration did well wow. <laughs> holy fuck Makes y'all sense. 
it and it's got it, it even has the word savings in it. It's a daylight <laughs> savior, right? Yeah, good mm. stuff, dude. And I'm still waiting for somebody to tell me with any confidence whether they're actually going to stop doing that or not. But I heard a rumor that this was the last year, but I might be misinformed. I generally tend to be. Really? Okay, interesting. I genuinely tend to be. That's hilarious. No, uh, I haven't heard that, though. That'd be really interesting to see because, uh, you know, it just changed. And out here on the rocket, like, it doesn't change for us. We're the same. Uh, but everywhere else does. So, like, booking shows is really hard. and Or it's not hard. It's just different. Um, anyways, yeah, daylight savings time to... Uh, to to coagulate more gold through the earthly mercurial time solution that we're thick in uh yeah because more sun up means more work more money spent more uh more things going back into the beast system that's um but to touch on the volcanic stuff you know uh secret societies and and alchemists and uh were very 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 much attracted to volcanic places and they're held very sacred for many reasons and so that it just goes way back and a lot of it has to do with gold because you know magma ridden rivers are where massive amounts of gold deposits are found and if you go to these special like nevada California, right? These places are laden with gold. So it all ties back to this, this ancient worship of, of gold. Like what does gold truly even like? Why, why is it so valuable? You know, is it because now we worship nothing? We worship the paper, the, the digital money. So I'm wondering if the blood aspect uh and gold like is it i don't know is it feeding something is it a sacrifice every time that we spend money is it a sacrifice i don't even know it's a crazy situation this book blew my fucking mind <laughs> dude you're reminding me of the fact that uh there's some cultures that think gold is the feces of the sun god and oh. that there's actually a lot of uh symbolic uh overlapping themes with fecal matter and actually money and there's even i know there's at least one or two deities where like they are literally shitting gold nuggets and that's their deal or they're shitting coins um so anyway (laughs) i hadn't thought about that until right now for some reason um but the uh the velocity of money thing that is really really fascinating to me yeah and i've long thought that you know technology is driving a wedge between everything seemingly between relationships, every single part of your life, there is now a screen, there's now a computer, there's now mm-hmm. a cord, now there's Wi-Fi, or there's something going on between you and your relationships, or you and your schooling, or you and your loved ones, or family, or whatever. And in many ways, it can connect us, but also it can divide, right? So um, technology has this really interesting way of being the wedge between all of these different things now. So you want a taxi just to go to the airport, you're going to have to download an app or whatever, you know, Um, I guess you could call a number, but who's doing that anymore with anything really. So you want to go on a date, you could go to the bar, but most people are downloading an app for that. Right. Um, Or you can go and meet someone in the park, but most people just aren't doing that anymore. So it's like that with so many different things, technology being in between um, other organic sort of things out there and money uh, technology uh, being based on code. So now your logos or mercury or mediator figure in the form of language 
hidden, concealed, occulted, but yet still for any of this to work, there is a, a code to it that has to operate. Right, right. That Templar cipher. Sure. Yep. So it just reminds me of how money has kind of done a similar thing. Everything has a value, a monetary value to it. Uh, just name your price, right? Of uh, whether or not you're trying to buy someone's time or you're trying to buy something someone has and you want to own it. Everything now has uh, this monetary value. And I just, I feel as though that um, money, the way it's used now, the way we understand it, um, it's very transhuman. And now with this velocity of time thing, look at how we're using money now than how we used to use money. So now we just have automatic bills that are taken out of our checking accounts and you don't even have to think about it. You know, beforehand, you had to have some sort of actual real physical exchange. I can send you guys money via cash app or PayPal or Venmo or anything else, you know, and then now with cryptocurrency and digital currencies and stuff, that velocity is going sky high. So I just see a direct, obviously a correlation between transhumanism, the advancement of technology Mm. and the monetary system. And it just makes me wonder how big of a part is uh, technology advancing for this velocity sort of thing that you were just talking about with money and making sure that things are just constantly moving at like light speed now, basically. Whereas beforehand that wasn't even possible. So anyways, just mm-hmm. a few random thoughts, but uh, that last bit that you read there chance uh, that is, that is really intriguing, dude. I'm going to be chewing on that for a little while. It's very important. Oh man, uh, I have like only half of the notes from that this book inspired really completed. Mm-hmm. But th- the question is, what kind of what kind of cans of abraxas do we want to open up? That's the question. Blood. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Okay, so this relationship between the Mercury and the the Saturn or the time and the the energy or logos that this philosopher's stone is a better way of putting it. The relationship between time and the philosopher's stone. Um, one thing I found interesting is how Saturnalia takes place on this end of the year, the five dead days that a big part of making an economy like this as it's designed work requires a universal calendrical system. You could not have a world bank or an IMF without a world calendar that everybody was following. Mm. And the interesting thing about that is that the ancient world had a world calendar set up too, even though they didn't need like timestamps on bank deposits and digital, you know, digital transactions being, that's literally what constitutes modern economy and and banking is that this X thing happened. And then there was a timestamp. It happened at this time, right? You have to have those metrics for the cartoon character. That is your digital straw man to have life or to be animated. So that's words and that's time. (laughs) Those are the two things coming together to create this out, like this alchemy of, transmuting our energy or our imagination into some kind of a value or store of exchange. And so Saturnalia, it looks so similar to Bacchanalia 
that, you know, you really can't ignore it. <laughs> this is supposed to be Saturnalia where the, all the slaves temporarily become masters. Mm-hmm. There's a, uh, a Lord, Lord of misrule during Saturnalia, like a parody of a king or a ruler who was often in some cases even sacrificed afterwards. Yeah. They would switch roles, right? And here's Bacchanalia where people supposedly would even go into fits of divine madness and kill each other. So how much of that is true and how much of that is astrotheology or alchemy symbolism? Probably or just just like drugs and alcohol, like legit, (laughs) like just being fucking hammered on mushrooms and like crazy meads and other herbal situations, you know? Yeah, man. Alchemists I, were drug were drug dealers. You know, they they made they made some crazy stuff in the labs. Totally. I, and I often I think about how uh, people are so restrained throughout the year, and for there to be a a massive uh, releasing of that pressure, it's uh, it's almost irresponsible to like you know, not imbibe, stay on the grind all year long. And then you get permission for everybody to cut loose at the same time. Somebody's going to get hurt. Somebody's <laughs> going to get hurt. Uh, it's the purge. Right. It's kind of like a purge. Yeah. It's kind of fascinating, but yeah, that Dionysian spirit, man, it, some people, they, they're not, they're not cut out for it. <laughs> it's a numbers game too. Like I've said this before, but as someone that used to go to a lot of music festivals, I don't know what the exact threshold is, but there's a point where humans go from humans and then they become like a locust swarm, kind of like crickets or grasshoppers becoming locusts at a certain density of the population. Like, I don't know, 2000 people, 500 people, 1000 people. I don't know what the cutoff is, but there's a certain point where it goes from everybody watching each other's back, having a good time and treating each other like family like a music and sky festival. I see you in the chat, Mike winter. What's up, buddy. And then there's uh, some cutoff point or threshold where, uh, I don't know, 2099, 2999 people, everything's good. 3000 people, somebody's dying or five people die or, you know, it, it happens. It's, uh, mm-hmm. there's something about that. You know, that there is like a spirit of madness that can take over the crowd and a big part of this question and equa- equation psychologically is the individual versus the crowd is one way to consider it. And that's like a whole nother depth of conversation <laughs> to get into. Right. Yeah. There's a buzz in the air for sure. With a lot of people, um, which just reminds me of, uh, I think I've talked about it before, but bee swarming. If you guys have ever seen bee swarm, mm. It's freaking really cool and wild. <laughs> and there's a literal buzz in the air and all of the bees are just going nuts and you can just kind of feel it. There is this intensity to it. Um, but I haven't been in a large crowd in a, in a while, which I'm okay with. So it's been a bit for me. <laughs> you mean of bees or of humans? Uh, both, I guess. Oh, okay. Humans, yeah, As you yeah, said yeah. that I was Googling uh, bee swarms and like the first thing, first image that popped up was a guy just covered in bees and he's just chilling, <laughs> vibing <laughs> like hard, clearly. There's nice. that bee, bee therapy you guys have seen where people go and like breathe bee box air 
they'll put like a mask on or they'll lay on top of a box of like full of bees and it's, it's humming. And it's like, it's like, there's a whole branch of therapy called bee therapy uh, where you'll breathe bee air and yeah, just, just be vibing out with the bees. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, I think that's red. Well, that's kind of symbolically appropriate because bees are also an emblem of the hard worker for the group doing your part for the, for the team, for the corporation. Right. Yeah. So absolutely. I think um, we're going to wrap up soon, but yeah, let's talk a little bit about a little bit more about the goat. Uh, We left a lot hanging there, quite a lot hanging there, but always an image of Rhea. I think this, sorry, his image of Rhea, Ma Rhea, (laughs) handing Kronos or Saturn, the Omphalos stone as a decoy for Zeus that he's going to eat. And then, at some point, Zeus busts all of his siblings and the stone out of Kronos's belly. But um, this is like the idea of the scapegoat, right? It's the decoy. Just, just <laughs> there are the- certain, there's a certain tribe of t- tiny hat wearing people right now that have a practice of transferring all their sins onto a chicken and then slamming the chicken against a wall and killing it like bad chicken. Why did you do all that bad stuff? Right. Just for the record, so for just for the synchro mystic record, the video I uploaded before I jumped on this this uh, show is was already titled uh, "Scapegoatology." Oh no, shit! Uh, was all <laughs> yep. It's all, it was already in the pipe. So I just wanted to say that <laughs> if anybody comes and checks my stuff, that I was already on this before I knew we were going to talk about it. So that's pretty cool. Dave, I want to say, bro, I, I love that you've been making longer videos too. Uh, checked out your channel just a few days ago. Cause I was like, cause you, you did go on a little bit of a pause for a bit. And I was just like, I was, I got off my flow, you know, when you stop going to the gym for me, I was like, ah, oh, oh, there's no, you know, slick's taking a little bit of a break. But then when I went and checked back, you went fucking hard. And uh, I just like <laughs> that, that you were doing longer videos, man, because the weaves are so wonderful. Thank you, buddy. Thank you so much. I appreciate the encouragement. I, I, I ramble so much and I like go off on a little thing and then I got to come back to the project, come off on a little thing. So I'm starting to like kind of make a list and try to stay organized and linear. Uh, this one is Santa Claus. Yeah, <laughs> buddy. That's right. But yeah, thank you for the encouragement. I love it. Uh, I am. Uh, I think that's kind of, I'm kind of falling into a flow. I got a lot to say on this project in particular. So yeah, the next one's another hour of me going all over the place, but trying to stay on the project. Got to stay true to the whiteboard. Let the whiteboard do the talking. <laughs> <laughs> we love that. Yeah, it's like this and on YouTube. So to uh, just, I'm going to just round out the notes I had about the goat stuff. Yes. And that way it's kind of on the record because I might not have another place for it in the future. The <sighs> There's so much with the goat, but first of all, Baphomet meat is wisdom or met wisdom. That's also Mitra of the Hindu god, the morning sun god Mitra, and then Mithra, of course. Uh, then back to this idea of the Chthonic underground mining aspect of these sons of Cain or Vulcan. That you know, if you're a, either a blacksmith or if you're a miner, you're going to get sooty. You're going to get blackened, and that's an interesting link to all of the versions of. Osiris or Krishna or even Jesus and Mary and many, many, many black gods. Buddha is black. 
uh, in the statuary, right? Even the uh, the Sufis, who <laughs> Sophia Sufis, mm-hmm. the, the, Black the Islam, Madonna. Islamic set, remembering too that Baphomet is a corruption of Mahomet, which is Muhammad. <laughs> There's the, the Templars and the the, the Mohammedans. I think may have very well been in some form of cahoots behind the scenes, maybe not the rank and file soldiers, but I think it's very likely that just as we see modern warfare organized at the top from, you know, behind the scenes, they're all shaking hands and part of the same club. Very likely that the crusades were a similar jam that the people were being sort of sacrificed to their blood, to the earth for some sort of uh, fertility or germination ritual. But the, Guys behind the scenes running the show, calling the shots, Templars, you know, Holy Roman Empire, and then the Mohammedan cult, probably, probably part of the same mafia at the top, most likely. So anyway, the Sufis, Sophias, they uh, were said to have reveled with the coal black smith. So again, that's just very Krishna-esque, that, that phrase. Then you have... Um, this Azazel, who was the demon lord, if you will, the goat-headed demon guy who was the sacrificial scapegoat's recipient, like you're sacrificing it to Azazel, was the idea. Azazel also called Aniza or Aniza. So there's Ani, the year, <laughs> on or on, or, you know, and then plus Issei, possibly. Uh, the, the head of the goat, I mean, a goat is also a ram. This is Igni or Agni or Agnes Day. Agni, the fire god of the Hindus. Agnes Day, the name of Christ the Lamb in the Catholic, the Catholic Church. So it goes, it goes on and on. But the uh, interesting point about the twin brothers in all the mythologies, I think, is really worth pointing out a little more, too, how... Well, let me just jump back to the, the goat stuff for a little longer. Hermes was a satyr, a goat man. He fathered the race of satyrs. Hermes, Hermes, Eros, I think that's all very close. Germ, meaning, you know, think about all this germ-related words. I think harem is related to herm as well. I think that's a related term. And <laughs> the last thing I'll say is just about the uh, the twins. There are so many versions of them, one being the sort of good guy and the other being the scapegoat, but usually the one who's the good guy tricks the scapegoat. And he's actually more of a trickster and not a great guy. There's Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac, by the way, who's going to be sacrificed, but is replaced with a goat from the thicket or ram from the thicket. You have Cain and Abel. And even this is often not remembered by people when they talk about Judas. uh, But Jesus had a brother named Judas. So I think it's just as likely as anything else that it was a confusion of the mythos that Judas would not be his brother, but just a regular old traitor. Uh, <laughs> I think it's very yeah. interesting that Jesus had a brother named Judas. It's you know, all part of the same mythological system. Jacob and Esau. Thank you. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's a really big one too. Yeah. Esau right. is basically Esi, the Arabic word for Jesus, by the way. Right. So one huge pattern with all of these is that one is out in the public side. One is doing the labor. One is going out hunting, doing the hard work. And the other one stays uh, reserved in the, in the private, inside the house, cooking up 
the the lentils. Um, and so there's uh, so that always blows my mind is how this corresponds to law, how the public and the private uh, operate. And so you'll have cops putting themselves out in the street so they can give you a ticket and sully your good name, uh, pass on the sin onto you. And so now you're dirty and now you got to go into the temple uh, and, uh, and clear your good name. St- scapegoat technology is replete through our culture. And we think that it's just sheeps and lambs in temples in the Middle East. We are doing it every day. Um, so that's something that always gets me about the, uh, the, the twin technologies. One is in the public, one is in the private. Um, and there's something to be said about even in physics now, there's that spooky action at a distance theory that they talk about. And they've got a whole new term for it. I know a lot of people are going to get all sciencey about it, but essentially you can have correspondence between two items from far away. And it's been measurable. It's been spoken of. It's, you know, it's the big mystery of the realm that we're in. Uh, but spooky action at a distance is also correspondent to the two goats and the sacrifice and all mm-hmm. the rituals and all the magic. And uh, today we just do the same stuff, but we call it high science. Are you referring to uh, what people call quantum entanglement? I think that's what some would say. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And that, that is correspondence. Like I, we talk about it in simple terms. It's like, looks like, sounds like, is like, relates to, and that's just hermetic principle number two. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, there's more to it. There's so much more to it. Regarding, uh, indeed. Uh, regarding the illustration you just had up. So once again, vitriol, visit the interior parts of the earth and thou shalt find the hidden stone. And then omphalos means uh, the hub or center or the navel, as in like the center of your body. So to me, it's just another reference to that central stone, the lodestone or philosopher's stone. It's got Um, phallus in it just as the mast or the mount, depending on if it's a Mount Maru or it's an arc, Arga. Exactly. Exactly. Central pillar being the lingua (laughs) or the lingam. Language and lingam are practically the same word. The Latin word for language being linguum or lingua. Uh, I got yeah, to throw, throw this old weave. We've done this before, but just for anybody who hasn't seen us do it. The reverse sticks, reverse sticks. The word river reads the same forward and backwards in septenary. Five, 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 five. Either way you do it. So you reverse sticks. You put a boat on top and you reverse the sticks and sparks of life are born out of that alchemical X, transmutable X, the symbol of change, the transmutable X. So I just wanted to put all that in the mix too, that, you know, this goes back to how to start a fire. <laughs> yes, right. Uh, Which is the divine X, spark, I that's Eros. That. That's really interesting. I'm into it. <laughs> I don't know how we, uh, how do we... How do we conclude such a good conversation? It could go on um, and on and on. Honestly, well, quick, a lot more stuff. On, on the goat thing real quick too, just to show and throw my lap, my only thoughts on, on that is like, it seems like because that symbolism of like a goat, uh, being a kind of like Aramis or this, this something that can be disposable or something that can be sacrificed, something that can be given transmutable. Like you just brought up the transmutable X. Um, it seems like that's kind of what a symbol of a goat is, is like, it's, a, uh, something that is 
like this symbol of like this fertility of plenty of and like transmit. I can't really explain it right now. I, I want to dig on that more. We will definitely at some point host a slow burn on breakdown of strictly goats. And like, cause that's a big one. Like I love that weave. Like we could definitely keep going and chewing and uh, anyways, I digress. Thank you guys. You're the best. I'll, I'll just say a lot of scapegoats have horns. The devil has horns as an example, right? Mercury, the sigil for Mercury has horns. In fact, horn is uh, the same if, word as corn, coin, Cohen. Indeed. Yeah, exactly. H, H is an X is a C. If you remove the horns from the Mercury glyph, you get Venus. And I've read before, and I think it makes a lot of sense that most people say that men are from Mars, women are from Venus. But I've heard the case that men are from Mercury, women are from Venus. And when you look at the two symbols next to each other, they actually feel like a pair. They're, they're kind of they're consorts of each other, you know, and I think personally, my updated opinion, if you want to mm-hmm. tap into your true potential, Mercury all the way. Mercury all day like that is it I I feel like that's why so many magicians and so many occult groups revere all things mercurial hermetic etc um, that's truly where it's at with everything in my opinion and so also uh, Mercury unlocks a lot of polar northern symbolism via the world axis and so I'm um, you know I just I favor Mercury for so many different reasons these days um, I think it makes a lot of sense to study it and integrate its lessons as with all of the planets and deities and archetypes and everything else. But I definitely yes. have a huge soft spot for Mercury now. So here's something I had nowhere to fit in, but it was back in the, you know, the research about the idea of blood being this generative, like sacrificial blood generating life. And uh, well, now he wants to go into the blood, huh? Just a little more. There's just this really weird <laughs> symbolism that I'd never seen before today of the stork or the pelican that stabs its own breast to feed its young blood out of its chest. And in this version, it has more babies, but in most versions that I found, it was three sons or three storks. And they got the cross, the solar disc, you know, the glory behind its Mm -hmm. head and everything. Mm -hmm. And then on this version, it's on top of the cross with the uh, INRI. So that's a very interesting symbolism too. I just wanted to put that on people's radar. I don't know if I have a good, you know, a lot to say about it currently, other than this symbol of the stork or the pelican is also a Pulaski symbol, which are the holy sailors, the ancient maritime priest commerce class, whatever they were. Yeah. Very interesting. Uh, Carl Jung wrote about this uh, uh, in a, quite a few different ways. Granted, uh, to me, a lot of that just ends up being just circular rabbit hole fodder. Uh, but he did write about it a lot. So there is a lot to learn uh, through through Jung and his writing on the uh, the pelican. Right. Got- I believe it's kind of a big thing with the uh, Rosicrucians. This is okay. artwork that they, they revere and kind well, of... Well, back to the Eros of it and why it would be like on this pole or this cross, just as the brazen serpent would be, or the philosopher's stone where, you know, the the symbolism of the stork is that babies come from there. So there's definitely that link. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, And uh, that last image had like three little spurts of blood. It looked very much like the three uh, valves or the three nails on the Jesuit. Uh, The Jesuits always put the little three nails, even the Pope wears, three little nails as buttons on his, on his robe. So yeah, very, Mm -hmm. 
very Jesuit rich right there. Hmm. Yeah, I think the next next weave we do as a uh, as a crew should be uh, called Blood and Goats or Goats and Blood, something like that. <laughs> that sounds fun. If your slow burns weren't like right before when I do the Sundays, uh, verses, I would yes. totally be in. Yes, for a long time. Yeah, we and we we've been changing on that time a little bit, but it is always Sundays. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm running at pretty high. I'm pretty much running at capacity in terms of fitting in things and my <laughs> schedule <laughs> in a fun way, not in a stressful way. I finally got a wall calendar where I I have a dry erase board with like the lines and it's all gridded out. I finally have one, and it is just like it's just yeah scheduling man it's a thing blocks of time the time getting it's, better it's at literally it all the a time. matrix the calendars damn you you gridlocks okay <laughs> uh it's it's been so great uh thank you guys for doing this uh thank you chance thank you gabe and oh, chance yeah, for that lineage of this book this was oh, originally man. gabe's book gave it to chance and now i got it and i want that to thank you so guys cool. that is so cool <laughs> thanks for uh, turning me on to this book you know i know we're going over time here but I no, I'm just finding more things in my notes uh, that I want to talk about uh-huh. <laughs> more blood stuff. So I, I was playing with the word overtime in my mind. Cause I knew we were going to talk about the 40 hour work week, 40 being alchemical completion. One plus two plus three plus four brings you back to the 10 to complete. Mm-hmm. Uh, four uh, yes. So overtime playing with that word, like I love to, you get I'm overt. And I looked up the uh, definition of the word overt and long story short, it basically means public. I'm public. I'm exposed. Oh. I'm, I'm overreaching. I'm hubristic. I've gone too far. Uh, hubris means overreach. Uh, but yeah, I am public is I'm overt over time. Wild. So, uh, <laughs> That was my last hanging Chad. <laughs> my last hanging Chad was Hel- Elias Levi. Elias Levi said in, in a quote, all forms and images in the world can be evoked from the physical soul of blood. That's a shortening of a much longer quote on the subject, but I'm just like holographic blood. We had those guys on in December finding pictures in the blood of stuff. Quite wild. Yeah, you just chop those baby dicks and then talk about penal codes for the rest of their life and everybody will stay in line. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, you find Gabriel at Slick Dissident on YouTube, Mario, Symbolic Studies on YouTube, SymbolicStudies.com. He's got a TikTok. He's got an Instagram. He's all over. Mario, um, what else can you plug about how people can connect with you? Yeah, yeah. Well, one thing I'll plug is just my recent presentation that I gave a week or two ago called Illuminati Symbolism. It's on the live page. And uh, I get into the all-seeing eye, the eye of providence, um, some symbolism having to do with money. I break down the New World Order, how it relates to the World Axis. I think they're encoding New World Axis, essentially, a New World Focus or a pole shift. And so anyways, if that sounds intriguing, uh, you should definitely check that out. But as you're saying, you can find everything at SymbolicStudies.com. Thanks for having me, dude. This was fun. Yeah, this was really fun. <laughs> All right, Hikate's lover. Yeah, where you where they find uh, you? 
Um, I love Akate. She's my baby. And at night she comes and gives me cuddles and hugs. Uh, Rising from the Ashes podcast. Uh, been doing it for almost two years now. It's, it's very nice. We got some really cool interviews coming out. We had a little bit of a lull. I do apologize to everybody. Because uh, when you tr- when we do specific topics monthly, it's like, okay, we're trying to f- find specific authors. And we had such a great wealth for a bit. And then there was a little bit of a lull. But I got some really good episodes dropping soon. You can also check out Esoteric America, which is another show that actually some of um, some of the people in the chats have actually been on. Andy Crone specifically speaking out, shouting out. Uh, it's a fun show where we dive into the history of people's towns. And if you live anywhere and you think there's some really fun occult stories to go on to, and you've never been on a podcast, come on Esoteric America. We want to talk to you guys. And then there's also Moon Mysteries, which is a show that we do with our fellow friend, uh, Kaylee Bracana, where you can check out, uh, Mysteries of the Moon, specifically, uh, two turds on a highway driving down full speed, uh, you know? Just kidding. She's not a turd. I am though. Uh, anyways, it's been a great pleasure weaving with you, you guys. You can call her a turd. She doesn't come to our shows anymore. She's too you know busy what? She's so busy and, now and with her boyfriend. Herself. She's you know she's got a new boyfriend now. She never wants to podcast anymore. You know what, Kaylee? If you're in the chats right now, she's not. I, I'm telling you, we can say anything we want. She doesn't even care. You know, uh, but we do have Someone episodes coming out. Eventually. We love her. <laughs> we love you, Kaylee. Anyways, uh, that's the three shows. Thank you so much. Awesome. Everybody's crushing. And people, if you want to get uh, biofield tuning from me, hit me up. March is already halfway through. It's book solid. April's getting pretty full. So if you want it sooner than later, you know, now's the time. There's really no end to the possibilities of what we might be able to find for you to get some of your energy back. Yes. Uh, you know, speaking of kind of the subject matter of this one last thing I'll say is I had a, a recent client who we were working on issues of fertility and the <laughs> the wildest thing, like to just summarize a, a long session with a lot of amazing insights was sometimes you find past life energy that is stuck. And uh, this person had a past life of their mom dying in childbirth while giving birth to them, thus a serious energetic block on becoming pregnant because of the guilt over that, you know, I'm putting it in a nutshell, but like, I don't even, I'm not like looking for past lives. It's kind of woo for me, but sometimes very specific information just pops in and it ends up being very helpful for the, their energy to go through that and discuss that. So anything is really possible with biofield tuning. I hope to do. A lot more with you guys in in this audience because it's fun whenever I <laughs> I, I know who I'm tuning because you're my friend from the live chats and it's staying quite busy. So I would love for you guys to hit me up so that you can get in sooner than later. All right, guys, that'll do it. Rising from the ashes, slick dissident, symbolic studies. Check out everyone's channel. Make sure you're subscribed. Thank you for the kind super chats tonight on YouTube and Rockfin, and for hanging out with us for three hours and seven minutes. It has been. <laughs> Quite an honor and a pleasure to share a screen with these gentlemen, and we could do more on this topic, no doubt. At the very least, I'm sure we'll bring this super group back together one day or another. <laughs> Good night, gang. Much love. Aloha.